Airline Pilot Guy, episode 318. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in downtown Roswell, Georgia. This show was recorded on Saturday, the 7th of April. today's episode, possible drone strike and light aircraft crash in New Zealand, a warbird crash, Thunderbirds crash, more crashes, more news, your feedback on this week's plane tale, the Sir Glenn Torpy interview, part one. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, flight 318 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It is an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and mostly answer your fantastic feedback. And I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from her beautiful lakeside cottage in South Carolina, Dr. Skydiver, Marathon Runner, Strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Dr. Steph. Hmm. I think my internet just decided to, <laughs> okay. to quit there. <laughs> whatever, whatever problem Nick had before the show, he just passed on to me. I was looking at you in the the screen going, well, she's just sitting there. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Steph. Steph. Hello. (laughs) Hello, I'm here and hopefully I will stay here now. I don't know what that was about. Um, You know, that was, that was odd. odd. I apologize, but, but yes, I am really here. I have not gone away or anything. Excellent. So looking forward to a great show today. Glad to see you guys all here. And also joining us from... His country estate outside of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hello, Jeff. Can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. I'm here, the other side of the world. Well, it's so good to have you. Thank you very much. (laughs) And... Thank you. Also joining us. Here we go. From his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia. Barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, pontoon party boat captain, Dana. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever everybody's listening from. Great to be back on another fantastic show. Looking forward to a great, well, no, it can't be a great podcast. It's our podcast, so yeah, that's 
not so great. So, but no, we're gonna have fun. Mm-hmm. Good to see everybody this morning. Mm. All right. We'll settle, for, we'll settle for good, mediocre, 51% accuracy. Yeah, Fairman, 51% accuracy rating. Median. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> below average. We'll take anywhere in the 40 to 60% range. Uh, we'll, uh, and anybody that's, we're happy with that. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And anybody that happens to be watching, I happen to have my master's hat on. I've been there several times. That's going on this weekend. So it's... Uh, and tribute to the masters now does everybody uh, know uh, what the masters is i don't know it's it's the first major uh, golf tournament of the year that the uh, pga professional golf association plays in and uh it's over in augusta georgia it's at the masters golf club i'm forgetting the name of the golf club now all of a sudden augusta national i think augusta national that's right yeah, yeah. how how stupid is that yes some sometimes just the simple things, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, the Augusta National, and I've uh, had the opportunity. My former uh, partner on my airplane that I owned back in the uh, the day, he had tickets, and I got to go with him several times. So it's truly an honor and a great place to go. Very good, very good. All right. Well, um, we were going to record this show yesterday, but I was out. On, I picked up a trip, and it was going to work out perfectly. I was going to get back. Yesterday morning uh, from Raleigh, Durham, and then we were going to record the show. However, the, uh, the the trip changed, and there seems to be happening quite a lot lately at Acme, at least on the on the Mad Dog side of things. Uh, getting a lot of reroutes, reroutes, however you want to pronounce that, and uh, so that uh, didn't get me back home until last night. Just too late, especially for Captain Nick and all of you over in the UK and Europe and such. So uh, we decided we'd go ahead and postpone it till this morning. So here we are. We're recording live on Saturday, the 7th of April. And uh, just glad to be with all of you. And we have a lot to talk about, a lot. So let's get on with that. Um, Let's see. Why don't I start since uh, I was already kind of telling you a little bit about what I've been doing. I did that three-day trip last week with uh, Brent Heron, um, and we were in Wichita the first day slash night, our first layover, and met up with uh, Nick Camacho at the, well, here, I think I mentioned it in this little snippet of audio. Let's play that. Hey, well, I'm in Wichita here with uh, Brent, my favorite co-pilot. Sorry, Dana. Well, you're my favorite, too. Um, and uh, as you know, we, uh, we always try to find barbecue where we go on layovers. And uh, so we're here in Wichita, and we're going to go to another place, uh, Delano's or something like that barbecue. But um, I was talking to Nick here, which you're going to hear from in a second, who you're going to hear from in a second. Uh, he said, uh, Jeff, uh, they're only up for lunch. Oh, okay. Let's go to, what did you say to me? You said, bite me. And I said, dang, they're rude here in Wichita. Oh, wait a minute. It's uh, Bite Me is the name of this barbecue joint. Um, and it's pretty good. So uh, we walked over here and met up with Nick Camacho. Yep. All right. And say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. Got to say more than that. Uh, <laughs> this is my first time meeting Jeff. I was just telling him that I missed him at Oshkosh by a couple hours. So uh, it was fun to sit with him and uh, Brent for a little bit and uh, pick their brains about what they do. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, as always. It's a lot of fun if you ever see that we're going to be, if Captain Nick or Dana or Steph or uh, myself, we're going to be somewhere. 
and uh, you know you want to organize some kind of a, a meetup. You know, Nick said, "Hey, I see you're going to be in uh, Wichita. What do you think about uh, doing a meetup?" And uh, we we put the signals out there probably a little bit too last minute for uh, maybe some of you who are living in the Wichita area. Sorry that uh, you couldn't make it. Uh, maybe next time, try to get a little bit more. Uh, 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 notice ahead of time. But anyway, we had a grand time anyway, uh, talking to airplanes and eating good barbecue. So that's it. Just wanted to let you know how much fun it is to uh, do an APG meetup. Say goodbye. See you later, everybody. There we go. There's a little snippet of our uh, very intimate um, meetup. It was just Nick and Brent and I at Bite Me Barbecue in Wichita. And it was a little windy, too. Sorry about that. I didn't have the uh, wind, the foam windscreen with me when I recorded that. That was on my, my feelings phone. feelings are hurt. I knew. I knew my, you would be. That's why as soon as I, that came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, he's going to be hurt because I, I said. My feelings are really hurt. I'm, I'm quitting now. See you. Bye-bye. Okay. Only All right. Bye. So that's one last we'll thing. We have to pay. Can we have a party exactly. vote first before take, you. Take, uh... take me off payroll. Less <laughs> <laughs> benefits. To... HR will be contacting you regarding your severance. <laughs> All right. I'll put that package together. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Let's don't talk about packages. Um, it's a family show, right? Family show. It is yeah. a family okay. show. Okay. Let's see if I can get that. Uh, uh, there we go. Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. So we had a great time in Wichita. And the next day, we uh, Brent and I were on track to uh, get some barbecue in Louisville, Kentucky. And about an hour before we were going to meet, he called me up and said, hey, Jeff, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I got to leave the trip. I got to leave you. I uh, got to go home. I said, oh, what's wrong? And he said that he just learned that his dad died of a heart attack. And no. I said, oh, well, all, by all means, you need to get, you know, you need to get home. You don't need to do the trip. So... Uh, they sent a replacement out and uh, flew the remainder uh, of the trip on uh, Wednesday. And uh, so anyway, um, I know, Brent, you're not listening. But if you are, hope that everything is going well. Our prayers and thoughts for you and your family. Um, so that's the kind of thing that happens sometimes. You're on a trip and then you learn some you know, bad news uh, and... You just deal with it, and uh, Acme is a great company to help you with that, um, taking care of things, making sure that you're okay. And uh, so, um, but the good news uh, from all that is that Brent and I were going to fly the next week's trip together as well, and the following one. Um, and he, because of all the funeral arrangements and everything else going on with uh, his family, uh, he had to drop next week's trip. And that's the trip where we're going to be in Columbus, Ohio, and on, uh, I guess, on Tuesday. And so he sent me a text and said, hey, Jeff, I'm dropping this. If you want Dana to uh, pick it up, you know, let him know, and then he'll uh, be able to pick it up. So we arranged for that. Dana was able to get on the trip. So, yay, Dana and I are going to be back together again on a three-day trip. So it wasn't the last time we flew together. wasn't the last time that we wow. were going to fly together. It, it's, it's absolutely amazing, and, and my heart goes out to Brent, and to certainly um, are a very heartfelt uh, um, I'm very sorry to hear of his loss, certainly, and he was amazing to take the time to communicate with Jeff and let him know so that 
we could work it out. And I was able to pick up the trip directly from him. And then he just dropped the trip that I had. So he was very, very accommodating, very, very nice uh, of him to do that in such a hard time, trying time. So yeah. I've already let him know that uh, I really appreciate his uh, his taking the time to do so and uh, certainly for his loss. So, but the, the, the good side is that Jeff and I do get to fly together and I just really, really made me happy, made my day yesterday. I was having a very rough day. I had a very rough week and uh, it was really nice to hear that I'm going to fly with Captain Jeff once again. Yeah, I'm looking for Kind of one of those silver lining to a gray cloud kind yeah. of yeah, situation. Yeah, very what much are you so. going to get for him this time, Jeff? A hat? Mm, no, shoot. I, I Actually, I have a hat. I just haven't put it on yet. Um, I'm going to get him. No, um, thing you put on your head, Dana. I'm going to get him this. Um, it's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you Very like nice. it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been I shopping. I've been thinking about, you know, what do I get? What was that, a bulldog clip? Oh, you know what? You can have my old captain's hat. It's, oh, it's, uh, no. It was That's so bad. It was in such bad shape yeah. that I had to actually get a, get a new one. I think Dane is giving you a hint on the video. Oh, what is this? Like. Oh, what is that? Rye? Uh, oh, bourbon, huh? Uh, I, I look like I'm a, a, a Russian uh, or German officer from World War One or Two right now. Yeah, you look like hat. a U-boat commander. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so looking forward to uh, meeting up with uh, Jen and James and whoever else can make it in Columbus, Ohio. We're gonna. Looks like James is saying we're going over to somewhere called Walrus. So uh, that's where we're gonna do the meetup and. Uh, Look for information about that on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, hope to see you there. Now, we're going to also be in Norfolk the uh, first day, Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, Dana, you said something about there's a great restaurant that you know about, and I noticed that in Slack somebody noticed that I was going to be in Norfolk, and they were wondering if we were going to have some kind of a little meetup there as well. And I said, stay tuned uh, to Slack. Perhaps we can let people know where we're going to be eating on Monday, and I told him it's not going to be a late dinner because it's no, an early trip. Because we have a really early duty, and but uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm I'm racking my brain right now for the. I know exactly where it is. I know it's a um, a farm to table restaurant, mm -hmm. and it's. Uh, let That's me good, let me look it up. Let well, me look we'll up uh, name, but. yeah, I'll I'll continue on, and then you can look it up, and then we'll tell you, and then we're going to have all that information on. The uh, face bag, I mean, Facebook and uh, Twitter's face um, And uh, not, face what week bag. did you say that was going to be? That's going to be on Monday, this Monday. Oh, this, this coming week. Yeah, a couple days from now. Uh, let's see. And then another meetup that we need to tell you about. Uh, this one um, involves a uh, an associate podcast uh, and podcaster, uh, the host and producer of flyingandlife.com. Dispatcher Mike uh, wanted to tell us that he's going to be at Sun and Fun, I believe. Take a listen. Captain Jeff and crew and APG community, it's Dispatcher Mike. Wanting to announce the APG meetup at uh, Sun and Fun this week. Uh, Sun and Fun's second largest air show in the United States is this week down in Lakeland, Florida. And much like we did for Oshkosh, I'd like to set a time aside and go ahead and have everyone that's going to be there meet up, do some lunch together, and uh, really hang out as a bunch of APG community. So that's going to be Friday noon in front of the FAA building, kind of right there in uh, 
close to show center uh, down there in Lakeland. So if you're going to be around in uh, Sun and Fun, feel free to uh, meet us up then. And uh, if you're going to be there, uh, shoot me an email, contact at flyinginlife.com. And I uh, just want to get a head count, just make sure we don't leave anyone behind. So uh, that's it. And hope to see everyone down in Sun and Fun. Yeah, hope that if you're heading to Sun and Fun in uh, beautiful Florida, Lakeland, uh, make sure you meet up with uh, Dispatcher Mike. He's a great guy, and he has a great podcast. And uh, oh, speaking of, well, okay, Dana, you're you're putting your phone up to the screen. I cannot read it. What does it say? I just I, Freemason I didn't want to Abbey. Inter- I, I didn't. It. I did not want to interrupt. But it's called Freemason Abbey Restaurant. Freemason in- Abbey. Well, you know, I think yeah. I've been there actually. It's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Of course, oh, then, we have such a nice layover there have you ever been on the uss wisconsin i have not it's awesome so well maybe we'll have to do a couple that things too. you can do yeah oh by the way speaking of norfolk virginia uh this coffee cup that i'm using this morning uh was given to me by mark van ram uh, apparently he claims that he's the uh, better looking of the two van ram b- brothers i don't know if that's true or not i think they're both great looking people uh he gave this uh, uh prescription coffee uh, mug to me because caffeine is a drug and i do appreciate that mark i didn't pick that with that in mind the fact that we're going to be in norfolk virginia just sometimes things just happen that way um so look forward to uh seeing you all in the the norfolk area if you're able to come and meet us on monday uh let's see what else we have a couple other announce oh i got some mail in the uh in the p.o box the snail mail the mailbag uh, from Paul, he sent this uh, quite some time ago. Sorry, Paul, it's taken me so long to check the P.O. box. Hi, Jeff and APG gang. I found these at the Pittsburgh Industry Public House. They will help you all, all ones, youans, to find some great beer around the Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Great Lakes area. Don't forget, it's still Lent. Well, not anymore, but it was when he wrote this. Uh, also notice I didn't send a pecan pie respecting the diet. Laugh out loud. Captain, wait till I, or can't wait till I see you next year. I think that's what it says. Uh, C-A-K-P-I-T or C-L-E. So Canton, Akron or Akron, Canton, Pittsburgh or Cleveland. Take care, y'all. Paul, uh, this is an actual handwritten note. That's what handwriting looks like if, if anybody has never seen it. There we go. Oh, that's what it's supposed to look like? Yeah. Mine resembles nothing. <laughs> okay. Like well, you're a doctor. You're not supposed to be able to <laughs> write legibly. Doctor. Have they stopped teaching join dot handwriting? Um, I don't know. Oh, you mean... Uh, no, I, think they're back, I think they're back to teaching it again. They really? stopped. Cursive? And then they, I think yeah. we call it. So he sent this uh, brewing news from somewhere. Great well, you mentioned Lakes. all those cities. I mean, Columbus is all in, is, is in that area as well. Yeah, so Paul, drive down us. to Columbus and meet us uh, on Tuesday. Yeah. There we go. Craft, uh, Craft Pittsburgh and uh, Craft Beer Magazine. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but thank you, Paul, for sending that to the P.O. Box. If you want to send something to the APG crew, um, you can uh, find the address for the P.O. Box in the uh, on the website. Okay. Moving on, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, good news. We are now, uh, th- this podcast is um, obviously on iTunes and uh, whatever your favorite podcast client is. Uh, and then we're also on Stitcher, on uh, uh, what's the other one? iHeartRadio, uh, TuneIn, 
radio and now we're on spotify just got that all set up um this last week so if you uh, are somebody who listens to stuff on spotify i know they have some podcasts there they just started doing that about a month or two ago so we're on that and oh big news uh plain tales i mentioned is now uh, on the uh, website and uh, again still missing a few uh, episodes but we're almost there i promise i'll have that done before the end of this month and uh, but we're also uh, it's also a standalone podcast on itunes so you can subscribe to it on itunes or if you're using some other kind of a podcast client you can uh, take the actual uh, feed or our url and uh, enter it there and then get your favorite plain tales uh, every week uh, when we publish the episode we'll also i'll also publish the plain tales uh, alongside and do us a favor uh, head over to itunes even if you don't use itunes uh, and subscribe to the plain tales uh, podcast and also write a review a five-star review would be preferable and uh, that will give it some traction on the uh, itunes store so people looking for the kind of thing that uh, Nick does, that great storytelling and aviation history, uh, that uh, will get some uh, some traction for people to find. So we'd appreciate and that. I've, uh, I've, I've answered an awful lot of comments on Twitter and Facebook, Jeff, thanking you for all your hard work. With oh, I didn't because, do anything. Uh, you did all the work. Well, yeah, the, but I mean, actually, it has been a mammoth task getting all those um, tales uploaded to the uh, website and then uh, activating them uh, as a podcast. So it's brilliant. Everyone's very appreciative and me especially. Well, I'm just so happy and honored that uh, we get to feature it on our show here. So now, before you know it, Nick will be on his own. Plain Tales will be a standalone podcast, and then he'll take the entire That's audience really with him. That's really what he's angling yeah. for. Ah, exactly yeah. correct. Well, wow. I need something to do in my retirement. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's certainly is probably the best part of the show. Come on now. No, yeah, no data. <laughs> yeah. Well, other than the feedback, of course. Yeah, oh, Steph, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jeff. And Jeff. And <laughs> Steph, everybody and else. Yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. not. Okay. Yeah. So, again, head over to iTunes, subscribe to the Plain Tales podcast, and give Nick some great reviews. We well, appreciate much it. appreciate it. And uh, let's see. So that's it for me. So we have the couple of meetups potentially next week on the uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday trip. And uh, Steph, why don't you go next? Yeah. So I actually have some uh good aviation related updates finally back in the air last weekend after a little bit of a hiatus which was kind of uh, some of it was weather some of it was work some of it was i don't know what it was just you know, aircraft uh, being out of service i tried, tried a couple times to go flying and fear of flying no good there so um <clears throat> but yeah last let's let's see last saturday i actually um went out and got current again for skydiving. So that was good. Um, I actually ended up only making one jump, which was not my intention. I planned to do more, but some of you will remember that about a month ago, I broke my finger, uh, which feels much better now, by the way. However, um, I discovered that um, rapid change in altitude and pressure does not make it feel real good. So I said, eh, I'll probably give this another couple of weeks before I try that again so you're going to be like the, the old lady with the with all the earth oh, it's gonna rain like the, it's gonna rain <laughs> the pressure's changed all my joints hurt um but no where i where i broke my finger was right in the joint itself so uh yeah um didn't 
feel real great. It was it was fine. Like I didn't hurt anything, but um, it was very very sore after. You know, it's like a ten thousand foot per minute descent rate for mm. the first part of the skydive. So the pressure change is pretty rapid there, um, and I think that's what it was. So. But still a lot of fun. Good to be back up in the air there. Um, glad to be current again because there's some big events coming up for skydiving um, where I where I jump in the near future that I would like to attend. So good to do that. And then on Sunday, got up early and met up with an instructor and I went out and got my biannual flight review done and an instrument proficiency, proficiency check. Mouthful there. So, I'm sad. I know. I should have done it. Well, I, it was, I had the opportunity. Let to me know. know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, well. I would have come. I would have come take care of you. I know, I know. Um, but we took the series out and did it in the series, and that was a lot of a lot of fun. Um, uh, yep, got all of that done. And then, um, interesting story from that: at the last um, approach, flying back into Concord, flying the um, ILS approach there to runway um, uh, two zero, and uh, we were doing a practice approach, and I called up the tower to let them know when we were at the wanted us to report to give us our clearance to land and there were a couple other uh pilots in the the pattern coming back um i'd actually seen them when we were leaving we all left together a couple of cessna 206s and one of them was ahead of me the other one um they asked to come in behind me um and got on the ground got everything you know uh buttoned up with the airplane we were kind of debriefing and then leaving and as we were uh walking out towards our car someone came running out to me and said hey are you dr steph i was like yeah. <laughs> and my instructor just kind of gave me this funny look. And he's like, all right, I'll catch up with you later. <laughs> um, and it uh, turns out, and I believe his name was Nate. I sent that to you guys asking me to remind mm -hmm. me to of his name. And then after I sent that, I'm like, I hope his name was Nate. Um, Nate, if that's not actually your name, I apologize. But well, I think you know who pilot. you are. He is a survey pilot. Yes. He was in the, um, the second uh, 206 that landed after me. And he said he actually recognized my voice on the radio. So that was pretty fun. Nice to meet up with you, Nate. Cool. That's your real name. And um, maybe I'll see you again around the Concord area. So. Isn't that odd when that happens? You know, it's like this little. Well, it was completely unexpected, you know, because <laughs> yeah, it was a I quiet mean, Sunday morning. It was actually Easter. It was Easter Sunday. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a pretty quiet morning at it's the a, airport. It's a, a small world and, uh, and a great and relatively small community. And when people come up to you in an airport or whatever and, and say, are you Captain Jeff or whatever? It's just kind of weird because, you know, we're not really celebrities. We're just, you know, podcasters just out there having fun <laughs> talking on the on the internet exactly but um yeah he didn't really have a whole lot of time to talk because i think he was still working so mm -hmm. um but yeah hopefully i'll see him around some other time if he's yeah. in the area cool anything else going on stuff uh what else um the rest of the month is going to be a lot of running so that's that's the other big thing on my plate and um some traveling involved with that so hopefully we'll work things out to get podcasts recorded in between all that. And um, I think we actually are going to have stay tuned for um, in person uh, with a couple crew members here, at least me and Jeff yeah. uh, podcast at the end of the month. Oh, someone else too. No, just you. Oh, okay. <laughs> a couple. That's two. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. Um, my daughter's sorority at Elon university is doing a meaningful men uh, weekend. And yes, I'm, I'm, I guess my daughter's meaningful man or also known as dad. And, uh, on the way I thought, Hey, I'm going to go right past Charlotte, North Carolina, Tiga K. So 
I thought uh, maybe I could stop by Steph's place if she's not busy. I know that's like the day that you're leaving on your international journey, but uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway. Um, It'll work out. It'll work out. Yeah. So maybe so. we'll be able to knock out a podcast that day. That'll be fun. Okay. Um, let's see. Who wants to go next? Uh, Dana? Sure. Well, uh, interesting week for me. I had, uh, uh, yeah, just my luck. The boat, <laughs> some issues with the boat. Uh-huh. Uh, last weekend took the boat out and, uh, it was kept on stalling every time I tried to accelerate it. So, so that was, uh, the beginning of my week and that made it a very challenging week. So brand new boat, just my luck. It, I'm not getting, going to go into the whole story of my luck, the bad luck. If I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. So, uh, but fortunately, uh, yes, they got that resolved for the most part. And, uh, flying wise, a four day trip flew with a pretty, uh, cool guy. He was very, very laid back, very quiet. Um, but enjoyed that trip with him. It was uh, an easy trip. Uh, no reroutes for a change. However, on that trip, uh, had an, an, a unique opportunity. And we were just talking about being recognized. And I always find it kind of odd. But uh, as I was saying goodbye to everybody, in, in, as I like to do, I like to make sure I say goodbye to every passenger on the aircraft. And recognize their choice to fly on Acme. A uh, guy had his phone walking towards me with the picture of our logo. And uh, so he walked up and he says, I've been trying to, <laughs> I've been waiting for the day that I get to fly with one of you guys. <laughs> so, uh, and so he waited for me to get off the aircraft and uh, his name is Dean. I'm giving him a shout out. Uh, he was on the flight from Philadelphia to uh, Atlanta. I uh, took a few minutes to uh, chat with him and he was very excited. He's in IT and looking forward to, uh, you know, he loves our podcast, so he said. Uh, and I said, well, we're you know, full of lies and, and inaccuracies, so I don't know why you'd want to listen, but it's still fun, and we really enjoy it, and you know, we enjoy having you listen to us. Uh, that same flight, I had a guy walk up to me. It's really weird. He had his pins on, and he said, do you know Trump? I said, yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> he says, well, I've been on his airplane bragging about it and i said okay well congratulations he says that was the smoothest landing i've ever had this flight i said okay you know i take it took it with a grain of salt walks off the aircraft i'm walking into the gatehouse and the gate agent pulls me over and says the guy got off the airplane and he said that was the best landing he's ever experienced his entire life and i said did he happen to say that he was on trump's airplane she said yes and i just walked away laughing <laughs> so <laughs> well, <yeah>. congratulations <laughs> the world's best landing ever you did it congratulations world's best landing great job everybody it's great to meet you yes yeah endorsed by the president the president's <laughs> A friend of the president, a friend of the president, endorsed, but by the way, it wasn't any spectacular landing by any stretch of the imagination. I just, <laughs> I guess he must have been just a happy guy. I don't know. But yeah. anyways, that was on that exact same flight that uh, Dean was on. So had that uh, opportunity to, t- to talk to one of our, our listeners and, and really enjoyed that uh, interaction. Um, what else has happened? Uh, I think that's probably about it. Uh, I'm right. not going to drone on about it. Oh, Masters uh, talked about that at the beginning of the 
the podcast. Uh, I'm not a huge golf fan. I'm not a golfer myself. However, the Masters, which is at the Augusta National, is the first uh, major golf tournament of the year that's going on this weekend right down the road here in Atlanta, and I've been there uh, four times. So a really nice golf course, really something special to see, and uh, that's why I'm wearing the Masters hat. If you cannot uh, are not watching the video portion. Just imagine hat the master's hat. Just imagine a black hat with a pin on, on the, the United States of America, which is a yellow United States of America. So very enjoyable tournament to go in. And one of the nicest things about that tournament, I just have to mention, I'm not take away from the aviation part of it, but uh, you can get a, uh, a burger, a sandwich, a Coke, a water, and it's very reasonably priced. Unlike most major um, sporting events where they super jack up the price. You can get a beer for three, but I think it's $3. So that just costs a thousand dollars to get in. It, yeah. Well, the 5,000, <laughs> 5,000. <But> anyways, <laughs> <laughs> that was my week in a nutshell. Uh, it, it was a rough week, but uh, it turned out well. I hear the pimento cheese sandwiches are pretty good as well. They're fantastic. And guess what? They're only, I think two or $3. Hmm. It's crazy. All right. So they're, Excellent. They're very, very good. Captain Nick, what do you what have you been up to? Not a lot, Jeff. I'm putting my feet up generally. Uh, I I'm still waiting for some sims. I've got to do a couple of sims coming up on Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, and oh, it's a bit of a pain because uh, the sim instructor is being checked. So there'll be two guys in the back. And, uh, of course, the sim instructor, whenever he's being checked, always uh, is on his metal and you never get away with a thing. So that'll be a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a trauma. Um, that clears me back onto the 330 uh, because I've been out of recency uh, for sims for that. Uh, my 340 sim was cancelled. Uh, um, and I don't know when I'm going to get uh, that one reorganized. It won't be certainly until next month, which is a crying shame because the two trips I've got uh, this month, one to JFK and one to lovely Lagos, um, were both on the 340. So they've been taken away from me because I'm obviously not qualified at the moment until I've done that sim to fly it. Um, so uh, we were going to possibly have a meetup uh, in New York, which now unfortunately can't happen. That was going to be on the 12th um, uh, because I won't be there. Sad to say. Sorry, guys. So uh, anyone who's planning to come uh, for a meetup on the 12th, it won't now happen. Um, the only other thing that's happened was I went up to uh, Gatwick for my uh, medical and passed that with flying colors. But uh, one of the things that I had to do prior to that was get an assessment uh, uh, for my health from uh, my diabetic doctor um, and present that. Uh, for those who don't know, I have type 2. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there is uh, an adjustment due to my medication, uh, for which I will have my um, medical suspended for two months while that's, um, un, you know, being accommodated. So uh, I'm probably going to sit around for a couple of months now and not do a great deal, which uh, uh, is kind of good and kind of bad. I love my flying. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, summer's coming, so I won't cry too much. So I've, I've got a couple of months off. Uh, obviously, I'll be available for a lot of shows. <laughs> so, oh. so that's it. The only other thing that's happened, those who know, 
those who know that I uh, I have three uh, Hungarian vieslers, one of ours slashed her leg open uh, a couple of days ago and caused us a bit of a worry, uh, blood everywhere, and quick trip down to the vets. Um, if So if you're keeping up with me on social media, you'll probably be pleased to know that uh, she has been down for a checkup after having her leg stitched up, and she's doing fine. Thank you very much. Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Well, I think we're all caught up. Uh, kind of a long intro there. Sorry about that. Lots of meetup uh, news and such. And uh, I think we're going to go ahead and just mix it up because uh, uh, our intro was so long here. Let's start off with the news. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. for a change. Good. Stand by for news. We're going to start off with the uh, first item in the news bag drone collides with light aircraft in New Zealand. Oh, you know what I should do then? I should probably do this. There we go. The drone and vacuuming sound effect. <laughs> All right. Um, looks like uh, broadcaster Rod Vaughn, this is in New Zealand, uh, says a drone may have collided with the plane he was flying moments before he was forced to make a terrifying crash landing near Wahi, Waihi, maybe? Uh, W-A-I-H-I. The veteran TV reporter who lives in Kat, uh, Katikati. <laughs> Oh, we're gonna have man. to work on our new zealand yeah. place name. Uh, <laughs> told we're probably gonna get plenty of feedback on this uh told the sure. bay of plenty times he was taking his son richard who was visiting from germany on a flight over the western bay they had set off from thames about 2 30 p.m in a small plane belonging to the haraki aviation club of which he's a member they were traveling over the city with the w about 3 10 p.m uh, when the windscreen of the plane exploded allowing a rush of air to enter the cockpit. The wind coming through was so forceful that it blew my headset into the back of the plane, so I had no communications. The air traveling through the plane was so forceful, it also smashed the side and back windows of the plane, and the noise inside the cockpit was incredibly loud. The only option was to get down as soon as possible, he said. Uh, he spotted a field south of Waihi and attempted to make an emergency landing he estimated the plane was traveling between 80 and 90 kilometers per hour when it approached the field clipping the top of a hedge the plane landed hard breaking the nose wheel before tipping over soon after impact he said it happened in about 30 seconds or all of it happened in about 30 seconds both Vaughn and his son were still strapped to their harnesses in the upside down aircraft blood was dripping down from uh, Vaughn's face uh, from a large gash in his head he was unable to get uh, himself released from the harness his son helped him with that they got out of the airplane taken to a hospital etc um, let's see so um, he said that uh, he had seen a lot of drone activity in the area and members of the Haraki Aviation Club had expressed concern about possible collisions with aircraft and I guess uh, Vaughn Rod Vaughn is a uh, investigative 
reporter for a television news and current affairs there in New Zealand. And uh, he said, uh, as far as he was aware, it would be the first time a drone had caused a plane to crash if his suspicion proved correct. And and then we have this add-on. I think, uh, Nick, you said you were looking for some follow-up information about this. And uh, Absolutely, yeah. I, I just caught, caught another article which uh, said that um, the Civil Aviation Authority had not yet established what caused the window of his rented plane to shatter. Um, so it, um, he believes it was a mid-air collision with the drone, but the investigators have found no evidence. Uh, the uh, the investigator said the evidence to date shows the windscreen had been compromised, causing it to fail catastrophically. No other systems were considered compromised or pertinent to the accident as well. So um, Vaughan apparently said he doubted the smoking gun would ever be found. But to be fair, a drone's a pretty big piece of kit. If it's uh, hit the windscreen and bounced off, uh, you would probably have found it within since he was only airborne for 30 seconds, within a, a mile or two of the uh, accident site, so um, uh, and some bits of it, certainly, uh, or some of it might be should even be in the aircraft if uh, it had come through. So um, I'm a little bit unsure as to what um, actually caused this. May have been a plastic bag. <laughs> yes. A weather balloon. <laughs> it could have been. But or I mean aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Aliens. Uh, I think that's the, the most plausible right there. <laughs> John, I'm just gonna throw this out. And I'm not a current GA pilot, so I don't know. Um I'm just gonna throw this open. Um if you lost your windshield, now obviously um, you know, you it's it's a bit of a traumatic event. Um why would you do an emergency landing straight that was, away. That was my question. I was wondering yeah. if there was something else that happened, but generally, well, I mean, there have been instances before where people have had bird strikes that take out windshields, windscreens, um, you know, and it's, it is a lot of air coming through that, which makes, um, you know, just, it's not something that you're used to. It's, it's definitely impairing your ability to manage the situation, but there's, if there's no other emergency besides that, I don't see why you wouldn't just continue on to a, to the most suitable place for landing and then land, which would usually be a runway. Yeah. So I was wondering he about that as well. He, he, he is a reporter. So, um, might want to sensationalize it. So I don't know. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. I think this is just, uh, you know, nothing to do with that, but I can certainly see where, um, you know, people panic about these types of things because they haven't thought through these types of situations before or even considered them as scenarios. So, you know, his, he lost his headset. He couldn't communicate. He had all this wind rushing at his face, which is making it hard to see. And if you have a lot of wind rushing at your face, sometimes that even gives you the sensation that it's difficult to breathe. So that kind of increases your panic level and you wonder what else might be going on with the, the aircraft. And, you know, it's just a case of slowing down and taking the time to make sure that you assess the situation and make the right decisions going forward. Well, I mean, let, let's face it. Uh, most people that are flying general aviation aircraft are not as highly trained as a, a professional pilot is not even just saying airline pilots or commercial pilots are, are obviously professional pilots as well. So, you know, it, it, it I guess we're Monday morning quarterbacking cause we weren't there, but you know, he's probably had at least 80 to a hundred knot winds in his face. Mm -hmm. Uh, and exactly what you're talking about, hard to breathe, probably very hard to see 
because now he's and he, who knows if he was actually injured from the windscreen breaking yeah, in the first in, place. So if you yeah. have that going on, that's another layer. Yeah, that's you know blood coming down on his face. He may have uh, you know it may have cause temporary loss of consciousness that he doesn't talk about because, you know, he got hit so hard in the head with something that cut his head open. So there are a lot of factors here, but you know, the bottom line is he's not a professional aviator. So he would certainly would view that as an immediate emergency situation and uh, find the closest place he can put the airplane down because, well, what's the best way to resolve that problem? Put the aircraft on the ground, and uh, now you don't have the wind in your face. You're injured, and in, in this case, unfortunately, the, fl- the aircraft flipped over. He he did find a, a suitable field to land on, but uh, the nose wheel dug in and uh, flipped the aircraft over. So other other than that, I think it probably would have been a successful uh, uh, outcome. Well, it is successful because they're both living. Obviously, exactly. that's, that's it. The most important from thing. They both walked away from it, but uh, you know the aircraft probably would have had far less damage if it had not dug the nose had not dug into a hole and uh, flipped over. So I think in in, in hindsight, uh, you know I'm not defending him uh, because you know none of us were there. We're Monday morning quarterbacking, but I think in reality he probably made a fairly fairly uh, good decision in my opinion. Yeah, I think without knowing all the the actual circumstances of what was going on, it's hard to say what the right decision was. But I think it's something that where uh, this is the type of situation where if you're out there, if you're a pilot, a GA pilot, not a bad idea sometimes just to, you know, no one wants to think of worst case scenario type of things. But certainly bird collisions are common and they have caused problems with broken windscreens and things. So just maybe run that through as a scenario in your head and think about what you would want to do after something like that happens, you know, assess yourself, your ability to fly the aircraft safely, the, you know, potential damage to the aircraft itself, and then what you need to do for a safe outcome. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say 30 seconds from start to finish is way too quick to assess uh, what's going on. So to me, uh, you spend 30 seconds just flying straight level going, is everything all right? Is the engine still working? What uh, height am I clear for the ground? Am I able to see? What can I see? Where's the best place to put this down if I can't see properly? Is it better to put it down on an airfield where there's a big wide runway and lots of safety services? Or is it best to attempt forced landing when I can't see properly uh, and can't really assess where I'm landing? I'm going to hit the hedge as he did on the approach and then end up with the airplane uh, uh, on its roof, something that could have gone an awful lot worse, considering he landed on his fuel tanks, for heaven's sake. So I'm going playing devil's advocate here and saying, uh, yeah, if you're in this situation, you really do need to have a good long think about what uh, situation you're in before you make a snap decision. And I took it a little bit, his comment a little bit differently, thinking that the 30 seconds he was referring to was just the uh, sequence of the actual accident or forest landing itself from the time he clipped the hedge to touch down and nosed over. I thought that was the 30 seconds. No, he was I, I took it as when it, um, when the windshield exploded till he okay. was on the ground, but you know, so I'm not sure. I guess it could go either way, but I I think it was just, he was disoriented and uh, Mm -hmm. that shock factor and uh, startled and uh, decided maybe, maybe he just assumed that the airplane wasn't flyable and had to put it down, not taking the time to see if it actually could fly, but anyway. And, 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 and again, we're, we're, I mean, just like what, you know, Nick, I agree with you. 
However, you know, a weekend warrior compared to to somebody that flies an airplane on a regular basis, the, the shock value in, in being able to sit there and think things through, you know, every one of us on this panel uh, probably would, not probably, I would say most certainly would actually take time to evaluate what the situation is. I'm thinking as a weekend warrior, somebody that flies an airplane very infrequently, and again, I'm not defending him, but some it, it doesn't fly very often and this hopefully for the folks that are listening to the show can learn from this but i'm i'm he doesn't have the training so he is going to be in, in complete utter shock of what just happened and it's going to make split decisions you know split second decisions based on you know his inexperience so again i'm not i'm not defending him i'm not saying it's the best choice but i'm saying that's what happened uh certainly uh not the best choice of 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 uh, course of action in this case, uh, but certainly what he did. It and, and I see why he did it because I've seen, I've, you know, as a flight instructor, I've flown with plenty of people that are very inexperienced and uh, just uh, don't think about all the possibilities when they're flying. They just think about not hitting other airplanes, me up landing the aircraft safely, and get to their destination. That's what they're thinking about. Okay. Let's move on to item B in the news folder. A Delta 757-200 at Atlanta on March 29th, 2018. Hydraulic failure and then a subsequent wheel fire after landing. Uh, Delta Airlines Boeing, I uh, just mentioned that, uh, was flying from Atlanta to Quito, Ecuador, with 199 passengers and eight crew. They were en route at flight level 350 about 240 nautical miles south southeast of atlanta when the crew decided to return to atlanta due to a loss of hydraulic pressure on the left hand side on approach to atlanta the crew advised that they would stop on the runway the aircraft touched down rolled out safely on runway 27 right which is the longest runway in atlanta the crew reported that they were unable to vacate the runway and would shut the aircraft down Emergency services reported the aircraft appeared to have made a safe landing. A tow tug was being called to the runway. A runway inspection revealed no debris on the runway. About eight minutes after the aircraft came to a stop, a fire broke out on the right-hand main gear. Emergency services put the fire out. The aircraft was subsequently towed to the apron. And uh, there's a picture here in this article from the Aviation Herald of the uh, right-hand main gear fire and smoke uh, taken from a passenger on another aircraft taxiing by. But uh, uh, everybody made it uh, off the airplane just fine, and it was uh, one of those situations where they were probably very heavy, coming in much, much faster than they normally would, and uh, they uh, uh, heated up the brakes, apparently, and then perhaps some of the hydraulic uh, system may have leaked on the, uh, the main gear and started the uh, fire, but they're investigating that now. But, you know, the good thing is that we actually have some uh, audio from this incident inside the cabin. Let's take a listen. Good afternoon. This is your captain, Captain Doubtfire. I'd like to welcome everybody aboard Delta Flight 223, nonstop service to Ecuador. Looks like we have a full flight today. Looks like we had a flash sale. So we are, uh, we are packed out today. Uh, let you know about today's service. Uh, as soon as we're airborne, your smoking hot flight attendants will be serving flaming B-52s, followed by an entree of smoked trout. For dessert, we have Cherry's Jubilee Flambe. I hope you're enjoying today's boarding music. Today's selection is Disco Inferno, my personal favorite. 
And today's in-flight entertainment will be St. Elmo's Fire. So as soon as we push back, we're going to hot-foot it out of here and get on the Ecuador. Is it hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> yes. It's been a while, but that was Thank Miami you. Hick. Oh, Miami <laughs> Hick. So good to hear you back. That was hysterical. <laughs> So, you know, I guess you could say that uh, from the very beginning, before they even left, there was uh, some indication that there was going to be a fire on the right, right main landing gear. <laughs> I mean, just a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. No, I'm, Sometimes life is like that. You know, you talk about those coincidences. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Thank you, Miami Heck, for that. Good job. <laughs> yes. Always good to have some levity. Ah, all right. Um, plane crashes at Warbirds. Uh, this again in New Zealand. What's going on over there in New Zealand? Guys can't keep the airplanes in the air. Uh, this was um, uh, what was it called the Wings over Warbirds over Wanaka International Air Show, and uh, a one of the Warbirds, a Yak three, piloted and owned by Arthur Dovey, landed on the grass runway next to the uh, hard surface runway, and toward the latter end of the landing roll, hit a cherry picker for use by camera operators damaging its right wing an eyewitness said the plane hit with a a hell of a bang <laughs> there is video here uh we'll, which we'll include in the show notes that you can um, watch and uh, listen as the uh, airplane comes in for a beautiful landing it's a tail dragger and uh so you know the the visibility of this thing is probably not great although i'm not sure why the pilot didn't see the cherry picker uh at the end of the rollout area before he put the tailwheel down and uh, obstructed his own vision but uh, it's quite spectacular seeing this thing coming in and then basically ripping off the right main I mean I'm sorry the uh, right wing and uh, right landing gear and kind of sad because I think it's only one of only a handful of yak threes that are actually flying today and now it's it's even smaller handful. Um, I, I was curious to know why he didn't uh, land on the runway. I, mean, I don't know. There were a lot of people asking the same question in various chat rooms. Why he chose to land on the grass where obviously this obstacle was sighted. I don't know. Uh, somebody mm. was saying mm-hmm. or surmising that it was because it's easier on the airplane. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I think the hard surface runway would be easier on the airplane than a grass runway. It might runway. be easier on the pilot. I don't know. Yeah. Less chance of bouncing. Oh, I forgot. I uh, ended up uh, pulling some audio from the video. Let's listen to this. Pretty. Uh, you can hear the uh, air show announcer in the background and his reaction when the thing hits the uh, cherry picker. The grass section here, we've got the two vectors, parallel runways, grass and seal. Lovely touchdown there by Arthur Dovey, our local pilot in the Yak 3. Brad from, oh, he's just, that's not looking good. Ouch. So what what do you say? That that's not that's very not good. Looking good. That's, that's not, not looking not very good. good. That's go, not oh, looking good. that's not looking oh. good. Kind of an understated <laughs> reaction there. Yeah. Yeah. Take a look at the uh, uh, video that we'll put in the show notes and you'll you'll see it was a interesting ride. Anyway, um, let's move on uh, because we have a lot of news here today. Uh, just a you know what? I'm going to 
table item D for another show because I think there's something else that we can talk about at the same time. Okay. With this. Okay. We'll skip to E. Uh, NASA has taken a huge leap forward in its quest to create an aircraft that can travel faster than the speed of sound without causing the ear-splitting sonic boom. The space agency announced today, on the 2nd of April, that it has awarded the aerospace company Lockheed Martin a $247.5 million contract to design and build a new X-plane known as the Low Boom Flight Demonstrator, or the LBFD which may soar silently over the U.S. by 2022. Today's announcement comes less than two weeks after President Donald Trump signed a federal budget for fiscal 2019 that fully funds the LBFD. In his budget proposal, Trump noted that the X-Plane would open up a new market for U.S. companies to build faster commercial airliners, creating jobs and cutting cross-country flight times in half. But don't expect to board a supersonic passenger jet anytime soon. Lockheed Martin's LBFD won't be built for transporting people. Before any supersonic planes will be allowed to fly over land, NASA and Lockheed Martin must prove that it's possible to break the sound barrier without the sonic boom. This piloted X-Plane will be built specifically to fly technologies that reduce the loudness of a sonic boom to that of a gentle thump. Uh, I think uh, elsewhere I heard that it's kind of like the sound of somebody closing a, a car door or something like that. So not the kind of sonic booms that supersonic flight normally entails, and uh, which sometimes break windows and cause cows to have heart attacks. <laughs> so... Um, Those poor cows. Yeah, poor cows. Save the cows. <laughs> I just made that part up. I don't know if cows actually have heart attacks or not, but it seems logical. Um, so what do you think about that? Boom. Boom. Yeah. A lot of uh, companies working on this, uh, these technologies. I think seems that is an awfully big um, budget there. 200. I mean, you also call it $250 million is a lot of money. You know what? I'm looking at that thinking... I don't, it just, it hit me the other way. It was like, it doesn't seem like uh, enough money to really get this project done, but I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, just, yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Jeff. I think it's highly underfunded. Yeah. I don't know, but you know, I don't, I'm not into, uh, you know, X planes and boom technology. So I, maybe I'm. No, and I don't understand how they kind of get around the physics of that, but I'm not know. a physics person. Like physics is not my strength. So, um, be interested to hear more about the the physics behind it. Well, I don't really think they can, and they that's can, what I was thinking. They um, they can possibly lessen the effects of it, but there's going to be a um, there, there there will be a barrier there. There will be a a sonic shock wave. It's just how um, dense it is and how far mm -hmm. down it reaches. Whether it can be dissipated, I don't know. It's interesting. Well, I'll be by that time. I'll be senior enough to actually hold it and before i retire you guys will be gone could be <laughs> it's only going to cruise at about fifty-five thousand, which isn't, isn't even as high as concord mm -mm. Mm. yeah we'll see stuff. a lot of uh, companies out there thinking that this is going to be viable and uh, they're going to be able to do now of course you know they can get rid of the boom because you know they've they've been able to get rid of wake turbulence apparently because now we don't have the <laughs> spacing that we used to have and uh no, I'm just, that's being a uh, yeah, sarcastic. cynical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you're being funny, but I don't know about you, Jeff. I, I find that the 717 throws off a bigger weight turbulence than the uh, than the 5.7 does. 
I can't. Hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely amazed laying behind a seven one seven. How much weight turbulence that thing throws? I uh, I don't know if I've experienced that myself, but uh, I always make a sarcastic comment as we were cleared for takeoff as a seven fifty seven is still on the runway in Atlanta, and we're given clearance for takeoff. And I usually look around at my first officer and say, "Yeah, see." The 757 doesn't put out any wake turbulence anymore. This is perfectly safe as we start our takeoff roll down the runway. Yeah. At least I'll have it on the tape when we crash. Um, <laughs> Guys, just, uh, what kind of people do you think are going to be flying inside this airliner when they build it? Uh, uh, people that have a lot of money. People. Yeah. yeah. A very small number of very rich people. Yeah. I was going to say, not a lot of people. It doesn't look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do you think it's being funded by a rich person? Ah, yes. I was coming to that. I didn't know whether you'd get there first. Yeah. Well, I, Some, I still sometimes like to pick up on the obvious. I still like, uh, was it Elon Musk's idea of uh, rockets to uh, get places around the world? You know, you go out to the to your uh, personal rocket ship and uh, go into orbit uh, or low Earth orbit and then back down reentry and then um, recover somewhere on the other side of the world. And what what was it again? Like, 17 minutes or something ridiculous yeah. Yeah. completely affordable i'm sure oh yeah he might need to get a slightly more successful success rate i should say before i <laughs> they're working on there <laughs> yeah. yeah before i sign up <laughs> okay moving on number f number f no how about letter f uh the u.s air force has released the name of the thunderbird pilot killed in yesterday's f-16 crash of course that wasn't yesterday it was a few days ago uh, in nevada thunderbird number four major steven del bagno was killed in the crash that occurred while the team was practicing their air show routine near Creech Air Force Base. He was in his first of two seasons with the team, which is based at nearby Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. He had over 3,500 flight hours in both civilian and Air Force aircraft. And uh, anyway, uh, so there was some kind of a crash. They were doing a routine air show practice, and uh, he was number four, which is, I think, the slot position. And uh, we're uh, we're sad to hear that. And I'm not sure exactly how this is going to affect their demonstration season. I'm sure it's going to, you know, cause it to uh, be postponed a bit while they train the new uh, the new pilot for the demonstration team and then go through all the necessary safety uh, procedures to try to identify what happened there. Yeah. You know, anytime loss of life, always very sad. So, yeah. All right, and then finally, another cra- this news segment is full of all kinds of crashes. Um, this one occurred in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, uh, a, an Embry Aeronautical University student identified as Zachary Capra uh, was uh, with a designated Federal Aviation Administration examiner, John Ozma, and uh, they were on a training flight, and they disappeared. I have some um, some audio from this. Uh, this is Phoenix Air 2-8. Um, when I was coming in, intercepting the downwind, I saw something white fall north of, or, sorry, west of the farmer's market. You said fall? That's what it looked like. I thought it was a bird at first. I'm hoping it's a bird. Bird 104, follow the skyhawk ahead. Uh, Riddle 104, can you uh, let us know if you see anything around the uh, flea market area? Riddle 104, affirmative, sir. Phoenix Air 28, turn base, your number uh, 4, runway uh, 25 left, clear to land. 
Seeing sir, two eight turning base, uh, number four two five left clear to land. Go to one zero four, and you said affirmative. Yeah. Did you see something? No, sir. I will let you know if we see something. And riddle 461, uh, in your upwind, just continue upwind, and uh, let me know if you see uh, anything out there. We are not talking to an arrow anymore. Uh, does anybody in the upwind, crosswind, or downwind on the west side of the field uh, see anything? Uh, riddle 104 did uh, not see anything, sir. Riddle 106, Daytona Tower. Riddle 106. 423 did not see anything as well around the downwind. We've been keeping an eye out. 423, Roger. Riddle 104, number 3, runway 25 left, clear to land. Riddle 104, we're clear to land, runway 25 left. Riddle 106, tower. 417 in November, number 4, runway 25 left, clear to land. Uh, 25 left, clear to land, and we have the plane in sight on the ground. 417 in November. 417 in November, say that again. We have the plane on the ground in sight. It's uh. Hard to describe the position right now. Alright, uh, is it uh, a riddle arrow? It's hard to see, but we can see the uh, debris and there's a few cars. It's right, parked right by a road. Okay, and it's uh, right under, underneath you or is it to the left or right of you? It's about two miles off our uh, 7 o'clock right now. Roger, is it, is it a field or what is it? what's the area look like? It's a field if you want me to. I can take a left turn and fly right over and give you the exact position if you want. 417 in November, make a uh, left turn heading of a uh, 250. Track 250, I'll point it out for you. 417 in November. Riddle 461, turn crosswind. Turn crosswind with a 461. 461, there will be a uh, Skyhawk. Making a left 180 going back over, uh, or he'll be on a 250 heading. Reverse okay. downwind. Roger, Riddle 461, we'll look for traffic. No, we're swimming in November and just uh, cancel your uh, landing clearance and you're over the area now. We're about to be over in about two seconds. We'll be right over position right now. We're 17 November, Roger. And traffic uh, heading to your left is the Cessna on the downwind. Just watch that traffic. Yeah, on the side, we'll follow the for the remainder of the pattern. 417 November. Little 461, runway 25 left. Clear to land. Wind 2806. Clear to land, 25 left. Little 461. Little 461, you're following the second uh, Cessna on traffic. Uh, second Cessna, we're following. Little 461. Just a quick update to you for you. 417 November. Uh, they Went down right by a road. There's several cars already at the scene. Rogers, uh, the plane looked to be intact. Negative. And then this from the uh, NTSB on scene. At 10 o'clock this morning, uh, we received a phone call from the sheriff's office from the tower that a plane had crashed right behind me in the field. Deputies arrived on scene. They discovered there was a wing on the other side of Mocha Farms in the, uh, on the field there. Uh, there was no distress signal for the plane sent that we know as of right now. There are two confirmed fatalities in the fuselage of the plane. What we're hearing from witnesses is that the wing fell off some 150 yards, 200 yards away from where the plane finally rests. My understanding is it was a training flight that took off from Daytona Beach. Okay, so there you go. Um, sounds to me, uh, based on witness reports and the fact that the wing was separate for, from the main part of the crash, that the wing actually separated from the Piper PA-28 arrow. Yeah, that's terrifying and very sad. And yeah, I think the audio that you got, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of just sums everything up. I don't have a whole lot more to say about it, except yeah. for wait for more information and, and see what they find yeah that's got to be terrifying you know when a, 
not really much you can do. You're just along for the no, ride they were, to the ground. They were in the pattern, it sounds like, with everyone else, you know, mm-hmm. um, based on where they were and where the, the crash occurred. So they wouldn't have been at a very high altitude. But, you know, if the wing separates from the plane. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And the frightening thing there is that uh, this thing was just flying along, you know, in, in the pattern. Not like they're pulling you know, a lot of G forces, uh, to cause a, a wing to break like that. So, uh, wow. Yeah. Very sad. Like I said, it'll, I'll be interested to see what, uh, cause I, I don't fly an arrow regularly now, but I have in the past. So I'm interested to hear what caused that. It sounds like a structural failure failure. So yeah, it does. Okay. Um, that's enough with the news today. And, uh, let's just take a little break and talk about, the coffee fund, if you don't mind. Johnny, how much more coffee? No oh, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the job and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And since the last show, using the coffee fund classic method, we have Brian Huey and Scott Wunstel, and both of them uh, gave very, very nice, generous contributions. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, that's one way to do it. Another way is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com and since the last episode we have several who have joined up to become patrons of the show justin williams he's been a patron for quite some time but he actually bumped his up to uh, the executive producer level so thank you justin for that uh timothy daniel Motsif, a new uh, producer olivier olivier farine um We've got received feedback from you. I recognize your name. Thank you. Welcome aboard the Coffee Fund Cadre. Mike Bambrick, another executive producer. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Nicholas Hewitt and Dean Collett. So thank you, all of you, for joining the Coffee Fund Cadre. If you want to learn more about it, head over to the website, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And now, time for the best part of the show your feedback captain incoming message all righty let's start off with uh, number one that'd be appropriate uh will writes um apparently this was posted in january but i just discovered it have you seen it yet uh, watched it sitting in our crew room at DCA and couldn't help laughing out loud. Again, this is Will Cool. Yes, believe it or not, he has a very cool name, K-O-O-L. We like to call him Captain Cool. And he sent a link to this uh, video on YouTube and is very, very funny. And the name of the video is Air Travel in Real Life. Now, since you're listening to this and not watching it on video, you have to kind of use your imagination before you actually watch it. Uh, yourself. Uh, there is a SUV parked in a driveway, and I'm just going to play a little snippet of it. So an SUV parked in a driveway full of passengers. Ladies and gentlemen, there seems to be a small problem with the uh, sunglasses compartment in the center console. We should have that problem fixed momentarily, and we'll be on our way. Thanks for your patience. 
Can you put that in airplane mode for me? It is. That looks like Facebook. It's just a game. We're currently fourth in line and should be on our way in about 20 minutes. And then it says 45 minutes later, then is backing out of the driveway. <laughs> it's very funny. So obviously all these little uh, things that happen or can happen to you while traveling, but they're putting it in the uh, setting, the venue of a, an SUV, and it uh, looks like a bunch of people commuting together to work or at least trying to. So it's very, you'll get a kick out of it and laugh out loud as <laughs> Will did. Yeah, I loved it, particularly uh, the very end when they, they're kind of queuing with their heads crammed against the ceiling for this one bloke to get his stuff together and open the door. <laughs> it's very, very funny. Good. Very clever uh, comedy. Uh, all right, uh, let's move on to number two. This is from First Officer Simon. He sent us some audio feedback. He said, I'm sending in this audio feedback, which hopefully is vaguely interesting, <laughs> which was the theme of our show. Uh, love the show. Keep up the good work. And so let's listen to, and it's been a while since I'm, I've listened to this, so I'm going to have to refresh myself. Well, that's not the right thing to say. I'm not going to refresh myself. I'm going to refresh my memory by listening to it with you. Here we go. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Dr. Steph. And the rest of the APG crew. My name's Simon. I'm an Embraer 175 and Embraer 195 first officer for a UK regional airline called Acme Purple. I've been a long time listening to the show, which I absolutely love. Goodness me, it sorts out my long commute to work. However, this is the first time I've sent any feedback in, and so please be gentle. Today's feedback is just a little bit of a contribution to the discussion that we've been having regarding flex and derating engines, and N1 values. The E-Jet has a, an engine on which is not dissimilar to that that you'd find on an Airbus A320 or maybe a 737. It's a CF34 engine, which is a derivative of the CFM56 engines. Our engines, therefore, have quite a lot of commonality in the way that we reduce thrust with many, perhaps larger airplanes. The first thing that we might want to think about is how air density and temperature, which are interlinked, affect thrust and then warm. Let's assume we're at a given airfield and we develop a certain amount of power. If it's a normal cool day, let's say, then the fan at the front of the engine might be running at maybe 90%. However, if we maintain the 90% rotational speed of the fan, but increase the temperature of the day, the air density would reduce. And because the air is less dense, for that given rotational speed of the fan, you'd actually produce less thrust. And this is really the core of the whole issue here. You, you can't specify that a particular rotational speed of one engine will produce a particular thrust output without other values coming into it. The next thing we need to talk about is ISA. Now ISA is the International Standard Atmosphere. It's a mathematical model of the world. It's not how the real world works, perhaps, but it's certainly something that allows you to do calculations and then derive performance, and it's used a lot in aviation. We've talked about it before on the show, I know, but just to recap, the standard atmosphere states that at sea level, and that's really important that it's at sea level, the temperature will be 15 degrees C, the pressure will be 1013.25 hectopascals, if you're an inch of mercury, that's 2992. We also have 
what's known as an environmental lapse rate. That's the reduction in temperature as you climb. So for every 1,000 feet that you climb, you can expect the temperature to reduce by 1.98 degrees C. Let's call that 2 degrees for cash. All of that gives you a density at sea level of 1.228 grams per meter cubed. That's a figure that we don't really measure and it doesn't get mentioned much apart from within the realms of theoretical teaching. The reason that we need to know about ISA is it affects how the engines perform and how we measure that performance. The engines are called flat rated engines and what that means is that they are guaranteed to be able to give you a specified amount of thrust until they reach what's known as their flat rating temperature which is where they reach their thermodynamic limit. The thermodynamic limit is when the engine reaches its peak temperature in the turbine section of the engine as specified by the manufacturer. The engine could probably produce more power but if we try to increase the work done by the engine we exceed those limits not necessarily causing a meltdown of the engine or anything but certainly reducing its life. So if you've got a very cold day the engine in our case produces its maximum normal rated thrust of 18,500 pounds and it can produce 18,500 pounds of thrust right up to the flat rated temperature which is ISA plus 15 or at sea level only 30 degrees C. Just assuming that we were at an airfield a thousand feet above sea level then ISA plus 15 would equate to 28 degrees C and that's why we need to use ISA rather than simply stating a block temperature. It means that we can then use the engines at any kind of airfield be it above, below or at sea level. Once the temperature outside exceeds that particular temperature of 30 at sea level then the engine has to start protecting itself. That's done through the FADET, the Full Authority Digital Engine Control Unit. With the higher temperatures outside, 31, 32, 33, what the engine has to do is reduce the N1. That keeps the inter-turbine temperatures, the core section of the engine, at its thermodynamic limit. The result is that thrust is reduced, and it's reduced by slowing the engine down. That's reducing the M1. So in a nutshell, what we do to flex is we tell the aircraft the temperature is hotter than it is outside. The temperature that we select is usually above the flat rated temperature and that causes the N1 value to be reduced by the engine. There are some limits to this. The maximum reduction that's allowed is about 25% of maximum allowable thrust. Now our engine can actually produce in an emergency situation 20,000 pounds of thrust. We'd use that in cases such as wind shear or an EGPWS maneuver. The benefits of using flex then are as we probably know reduced engine wear and to an extent a reduced noise footprint. A downside funnily enough is that it costs us in terms of fuel burn because although we're using a little bit less fuel for the lower power output, it reduces our performance so we end up on the runway for longer and we climb more slowly so we're in the less efficient thicker air for longer. The occasions when we can't use flexible takeoff techniques are limited to four for our company anyway. That is, if we've got wind shear reported or even predicted on the departure, then we don't use flex. If we're operating in low visibility procedures, then we wouldn't use flex. 
If the runway is contaminated, again, we can't use flex. And then there's a fairly new addition for us as a company. Uh, that is, if our electronic flight bag isn't working, then we can't use flex. Previously, we actually used to be able to do all the performance using paper charts, which then became iPad charts. And I'll just explain to you very quickly how that worked, and you'll see why we, why we don't do it anymore. The thermodynamic limit temperature in the charts is referred to as T min, and it's printed at the bottom of the chart. For every airfield, this will be different, dependent on the elevation. So a sea level airfield, T min would be, say, 30 degrees. Remember, that's the thermodynamic limit, ISA plus 15. Whereas an airfield such as Milan, it will be round about 28 or 29 degrees, where it's a little bit higher. In the tables, you are presented with data for the outside air temperature, which is also called T-assumed on the aircraft I fly. I think on the Airbus, it might be called T-flex, but I'm guessing there. Bracketed next to it is a value for T-max, and that value represents, for that given outside air temperature, the maximum amount that you could dial into the FADEC as an assumed temperature, which would give you the 25% reduction in thrust. Furthermore, there are tables of weights and configurations. What we would do, and this is a much abbreviated procedure, is we'd look up the closest weight to our actual weight of the aircraft, and then round it up slightly to get to a value in the table. We'd look across the table and find an outside air temperature. And that might be, I don't know, 60 degrees that came up for 38 tons as a rough ballpark example. However, we'd then also look at the outside air temperature and find that at 10 degrees C outside, the maximum flexible temperature is 34. So therefore, we'd be using an assumed temperature of 34 degrees. Having done that, we'd then need to look into a different table which would present an X and Y axis, one axis giving the actual outside air temperature, the other axis giving the difference between the actual outside air temperature and the assumed flexible takeoff temperature. And you'd look into the table to determine an N1 reduction. What you did then was look at your assumed temperature N1 from the original table, reduce that N1 by the small percentage given in the differences table, and that's what you'd expect the fade to produce when you dialed in the flexible temperature with corrections for pressure deviations, use of anti-ice systems, use of air conditioning packs, and so on and so forth. And you can imagine this is actually, given you'd be doing this on a turnaround with all the other complications of probably a manual load sheet and interrupts and dispatches, passengers, the rest of it all going on, it's a little bit of an involved situation. The first thing that we did then was we removed the possibility of using it in icing conditions. However, this meant that we were tending to use the performance manually fewer and fewer times, which meant familiarity decreased. And most crews were electing to use rated takeoff settings when the electronic flight bag wasn't available, which was perfectly permissible. And as a company, it seemed much more sensible just to remove manual performance calculations entirely rather than risking a crew trying the manual performance, which they don't use at all frequently, and then coming up with an incorrect result and then maybe incurring a delay because the FADEC is a very different outcome when it's all dialed in. So nowadays, if we can't use the computer to work it out, we just say, well, we'll use rated thrust and it's gonna be absolutely fine. We take all our V speeds from the paper manuals, we get our percentage of N1 from the paper manuals, and that's much safer 
rather than trying to work out a complex formula. Hopefully this has cleared things up a little bit for people. Maybe it's muddied the waters even more. But uh, certainly it's, a, it's an in-depth and difficult topic, even when you're doing your type rating. And if you can even vaguely get your head around this, well done. Hopefully you enjoyed the feedback. I'm sure I'll leave some more at some point. Thanks very much. Clear skies, tailwinds, all that really good stuff. And talk to you again really soon. Oh, Steady. Are we, are we still recording? <laughs> still here. Still here. <laughs> so well, before they launch into to what they're going to say, thank you, First Officer Simon. That was excellent. I really appreciate it. I enjoy the fine detail and I'm a nerd and geek at heart and I followed you 100% of the way, cleared things up completely for me. So thank you. I just had a thought. Mm-hmm. That's my thought, Bell. This is actually Miami. This is where Rick has been all this time. He's been cultivating this new, beautiful English accent. And this is actually from Miami Rick, I think. I think it's a very valid hypothesis. And until we actually (laughs) see the two of them in the same room together, I'm going to believe it. (laughs) And I hope you don't mind, uh, Simon, that I played the crickets. That's kind of an honor. That's an honorable thing to get crickets played. On audio Highest feedback, it is yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I'm glad there's at least one person in the entire of the aviation industry who knows what the hell's going on. <laughs> we don't on. understand. We still don't understand. <laughs> no, <laughs> all you're doing reducing wear and tear on the engine. Summed up in one little sentence there. Yeah. Well, then With why didn't complex- he just say that? No, because uh, <laughs> that was really, really great in depth, and you broke it down into nice, easy to understand chunks and put it all together. And I actually, I think, have a better understanding, or more in depth understanding, anyway, of uh, this whole flex takeoff thing. So, thank you, First Officer Simon, uh, for that very in depth feedback. Soon to be training Captain Simon, I suspect. Yeah, or I if just, he isn't already, right? Yes. Yeah. He's going to be building and designing all the systems. That's what's <laughs> yeah. going to happen. Improving on current design. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, uh, Texas Charlie sent us an amazing thing. He says, howdy from Texas to Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, First Officer, Captain Dana, and Dr. Steph. Saw this and immediately thought of all of you. Thanks for the hard work. You can't even begin to know how much joy you bring to the world every week. Oh, that's nice. Adios. from Texas Charlie. Now. Before I say this, I want you to know that I am not in any way um, uh, satirizing or um, putting down people of faith because I am a person of faith myself. And uh, this is kind of patterned. Yes. I believe God has a sense of humor. So I do this is too. Okay. I, sur- I certainly hope so. Anyway, <laughs> you're, you're just trying to preempt all the hate mail to get. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if you still are offended by this, then send it to Nick at airlinepilotguy.com. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what? I'm not, even, I'm not even sure if that's the actual airline pilot it'll, guy address it'll he has. Just go to it'll probably go to me anyway. <laughs> anyway, so here we go. Uh, this is from uh, Texas. Yeah, I, I should put Texas uh, Charlie's email address in there. He can get all the hate mail. Um, here we go. Our controller, who art in tower, hallowed be thy sector. Thy traffic come, thy clearances be done on the ground as it is in the air. Give us this day our radar vectors and forgive us our poor RT as we forgive those who cut us off on final and lead us not into adverse weather, but deliver us our clearances. For thine is the tower, the approach, and the center. 
for until you disconnect forever and ever out. <laughs> very good. I thought I that like was it. very, very cute. So there we go. Thank very you, cute. Texas Charlie, for that. That'll be in the show notes if you want it yourself and print it out and put it on your wall. Uh, James in Portland, Oregon, PDX James. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Stefan, soon to be Captain Dana. It's been some time since my last feedback submission, almost two years, actually. I've been pretty busy at work, now flying for a well-known regional carrier here in the Pacific Northwest. My wife and I are expecting our firstborn this summer, and I am a little under a year away from upgrade on the Q400. I still find time every week to catch up with the APG community, never missing an episode. Anyway, I thought I would write to share in the conversation of the pilot shortage. As we've all witnessed, the shortage is now real at the regional level. My airline made a few news articles last summer, and I'm afraid this is just the beginning. We always hear about the amount of retirements uh, that are up and coming, but there is very few tools to quantify the numbers. So I've made a spreadsheet that does just that. This table includes the major carriers along with FedEx and UPS. This chart does not include such airlines as Spirit, Allegiant, JetBlue, or Frontier, nor does it include the pilots that will retire at the regionals or corporate pilots. Feel free to post the table as a PDF link but I will highlight some of the numbers for the APG community to hear. And uh, he continues, in 10 years, by the year 2028, roughly 28,000 pilots that are now on the seniority list at the major carriers will retire. That's about 47% of the 60,000 pilots now flying at the airlines I included on the table. By 2032, roughly 38,000 will retire. That's about 64% of the 60,000. Starting in 2020, a combined number of over 2,000 pilots will retire from the majors every year with the peak years beginning or nearing 3,000 a year. The big three will be hit hard percentage-wise. By the year 2032, 61% of current Delta pilots will retire, 67% of current United pilots will retire, and 76% of current American Airlines pilots will retire. UPS currently has 2,725 pilots. By 2032, 2,081 pilots will retire. That's 80% of the current seniority list. Each airline peaks at different points, but the mid-2020s will be very interesting as most airlines need to hire well over 600 pilots a year to keep up with the attrition due to retirement. As it stands, none of the majors are hurting for pilots, but their regional carriers are. That's why the bonuses and other marketing ploys have surfaced in the last year or two in order to fill classrooms at the regional level. Altogether, the regionals employ about 22,000 pilots. That's less than the amount of major airline pilots retiring in the next 10 years. I know the industry has uh, spouted the words pilot shortage for years now, but this seems to be the start of a perfect storm brewing. The main issue I have with this industry is the outrageous price tag to become a pilot. It seems that flight schools have again noticed the uptick in applicants and those that offer loan options have inflated their prices even more. The flight training program I attended cost $65,000 in 2012. It now costs $98,000. I, call I called that training center last week and asked them questions about the price hikes. They said it was due to the uh, new fleet of airplanes they were getting and the increase in labor costs to keep CFIs. Uh, 
I don't buy that so much as the CFIs don't make all that much more. They're just on salary now, guaranteeing them a paycheck through the winters when the weather is bad. So, if you're an APG listener and you're looking to get into the field, know that now is a great time to do so. But be smart. Do your homework beforehand. There are cheaper options out there, but it may take a little while longer to get the money together as certain flight schools don't have financing options. Trust me. When you're making maybe thirty-five to forty thousand a year and have a eight hundred to nine hundred dollar monthly payment on flight training loans, the excitement of the job will diminish rapidly. Not to mention, if another catastrophic event happens, it would really stink to be stuck as a regional first officer for years, making that monthly payment while trying to live life and start a family. Just my two cents on the matter. Again, I will send the link to the PDF of the retirement table for APGers to look at. Thanks again for the APG crew for continuing, or thanks again to the APG crew for continuing to give us aviation enthusiasts a place to passively or even actively geek out. Take care and safe flying. James. And I'll put a link to the table that James put together for us in the show notes. With some big numbers there, Jeff. Huge numbers. I'll be 2023, 20, I think, is my retirement I was going to say, even, even that first number, 2028, 20, uh, 50% of the um, hosts here will be retired. Yep. <laughs> so yep. it's true. Uh, it, uh, it fits with the picture. Yeah, by 2023, 50% yep. of the hosts here yep. will be retired. <laughs> even sooner. Yeah. Yeah. A, a quarter within the next year and a half, I think it is, of us yep. will be retired. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the percentages of pilots that are going to retire within that time frame that is I find amazing. You know, forty seven, sixty four, seventy six, eighty percent, and you go, whoa! Not only are they losing the new number of pilots, they're using losing all that experience, um, and they're going to be uh, fire hosing guys in from uh, below. And, of course, the number of training pilots and the number of people to pass on all the good gen that you and I picked up uh, over the years, Jeff, uh, they're just not going to be around. Well, and, uh, you know, Liz says it's a good time to be a young pilot. But, you know, if you think about flight training costs, which have increased, I think that's decreased the number of um, pilots who are up and coming compared to in previous years. Um so just I think the pool shrinks and the the retirements increase and it just widens that gap more and more. So I just really see no yep. way that the airlines are going to escape the uh, the fact that they're going to have to start paying for all this training, all this. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the 65 to 100, 150,000, however much it costs, uh, they're going to have to bear the brunt of the cost of that in the future because that's the only way they're going to be able to attract people to take these jobs. And, you know, I, don't, I think we're a good... 10, 20 years or so before you're going to see airplanes without pilots. So they can't, they've been hoping for that, but I, I just don't see it happening, especially with the, the passenger uh, traffic. So um, they're yeah. going to have to have pilots, humans in the cockpit flying airplanes. And the only way to do it is to pay for their training, in my opinion. Yeah, this doesn't even take into account expansion. No. And you know that that's yeah. going to happen too. And, you know, the ab initio issue is uh, is huge. Uh, already, uh, a lot of international carriers have ab initio uh, programs that they send students here to the States to to learn and, and, you know, immediately have a job as soon as they get back over and gain the experience. Um, the cost is, is, is just massive. I, I see, um, 
I kind of forgot where I was going with this. Uh, it's called getting old, I guess. It's time for you to retire, Dan. It's, it's, it's time for me to retire. Yeah. <laughs> no kid. He's, no. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, that's where I was going with it. You know, it, one of the biggest and, and two of the panel members here uh, got their training through the military. And that's one of the was one of the biggest sources of pilots coming up over the years. Now that military, they're having issues finding pilots to train even. And uh, not only that, the military, uh, they're using drones a lot more. So they're not actually having as many guys or girls in, in the in the flight decks flying the airplanes around anymore. So that uh, supply is, is drying up. So not only are we losing the civilian side of it in, in the cost of, of learning how to fly, but also the military side of it. There are just not as many military pilots as there used to be. So I, I think it's a double-edged sword that, that we're approaching here because the supply is just not there. Ab initio is definitely coming. And, I, I absolutely agree with Captain Jeff. And I, I share Nick's concern about the fact that uh, not only, you know, we're, we're, you know, hurting for pilots numbers wise, but the experience level is just dramatically uh, dropping. And experience is everything when it comes to safety and uh, flying, in my opinion. Well, and, and most, most people think that what we do for a living is just pushing buttons and just putting the autopilot on yeah i hate to tell you there's a lot more to what we do than than just pushing buttons and and uh, putting the autopilot on and even when the autopilot's on you still yeah you're still flying the airplane involved yeah very much so if uh if they think that that's all that's involved in this then there wouldn't be a shortage right exactly okay well thank you very much uh pdx james for that Again, uh, find his table in the show notes. But as you said, if you're out there, you know, you want to get into this field, uh, now's the time to do it. And just understand that, you know, something could happen in the future to derail all of this. But uh, if everything is chugging along, um, it's, a, it's a great career field to get into. Um, number five, Stuart. Um, thousands. Let's see. Bailiffs are being sent into airline offices because companies are failing to pay passengers compensation for flight delays and cancellations, according to BBC Radio 4's You and Yours has learned. Thousands of court rulings ordering compensation have been ignored by airlines, including EasyJet and Thomson Airways, now TUI Airways. In one case, bailiffs boarded a plane. EasyJet says. Yeah. <laughs> it was our money. Who are they demanding? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, interesting. Flight attendants? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure they they have captain's credit card, please. That's right. <laughs> EasyJet says it's changing its policies about the claims. Well, TUI Airways has launched an investigation. Uh, bailiffs are arriving at the offices of leading UK airlines and staff are paying on the spot with debt debit and credit cards well we were joking but they really are uh let's see if staff fail to pay up the bailiffs can remove and sell their office equipment and furniture and they'll they'll take oh man that. i'd be like yes please take all this stuff out of my office yeah they'll go into the cockpit okay those side stick controllers okay hand them over That's right. <laughs> i'll be this. very happy to hand them my my uh um computer that we, we won't use the name of it but oh the microsoft surface 3 yeah, I was trying not to use the name. <laughs> Why not? It's all yours. Happy. <laughs> I'd be very happy to give him that. Thankfully, piece. we'll be able to turn, turn those things over in a couple of months, Dana, right? <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm thinking, honestly, now that I'm a boat owner, 
I was thinking about spending, I think they're going to charge like $125 or $150. Yeah, $150 and tying a rope on it <laughs> and throwing it overboard and using it as my anchor. It would make a good anchor. It would make an excellent anchor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love our Microsoft products. We really do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's sorry. like uh, I digress, and, and it's getting worse too. Yeah, you know, like you'll you'll turn around and you go, okay, I'm going to look at something on the appro- oh, it it shut down again, and so you have to restart <laughs> the thing. I'm thinking, good thing we don't have to rely on this for <laughs> our information to fly our airplanes. Yeah, you yeah, rolling, rolling out on the runway by the time it comes back. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Reverses and, and spoilers are up. And you're slowing down. Oh, it's probably oh, excited it's, to come back. back to life. <laughs> Perfect. So that might be part of the reason why we're uh, our airline is switching to the iPad product. All right. Amen. Very, very sensible. Yes. Of them. Yes. Okay. Uh, so anyway, it looks like... Um, the going back to this article, uh, I guess you get compensation if your flight is delayed or canceled, canceled or delayed three hours or more, and you're entitled to compensation of around 500 pounds, depending on the flight. Uh, but when most passengers put in their claim for com- uh, compensation, the airline ignores them. So apparently they're starting to review their policy when it comes to ignoring these passengers claims and uh because uh, i guess the yeah you see in the uk there's a very useful system called the small claims court uh it's a county court and um uh the, a big airline will be sent a bit of paper to their legal assistant saying that a, a claim has been put against you they may not even bother pitching up in which case you know it's a job done the the passenger who's claiming this uh, against the airline will have a county court judgment and uh, that means that they can demand the money and they demand it in a certain way and of course if the airline just ignores them as uh, it appears some of these airlines do then they're fully entitled eventually uh, to go to the bailiffs who can legally um, you know enter a, a property and take items to the value of the, the claim so i could just see how this is happening <laughs> Wow. <laughs> whether well, they yeah. can actually walk onto an airplane or and that might be a bit of a stretch but uh yeah yeah they're gonna get their money somehow right yeah well yeah. once, we'll once back one, in office furnitures and desk yeah. chairs and- yeah once once the uh once the injunction's out there then uh yeah you can use all the legal uh proceedings you must have an equivalent in the in the states i guess yeah we have a small claims court as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah, magistrate's court, I think that's sometimes called as well. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. You guys ready for this week's installment of the the venerable plain tales? So ready. Yeah, absolutely. You bet. Me too. Let's uh, see if I can find it. <laughs> the Old Pilot's Plain Tales. An interview with Sir Glenn Torpy. Part 1. Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, Commander of the Order of the British Empire, Distinguished Service Order, and Order of the Legion of Merit, United States. Sir Glenn Torpy has held many military posts, such as Station Commander RAF Bruggen, Assistant Chief of Staff at the Permanent Joint Headquarters in Northwood, the Director of Air Operations at the Ministry of Defence, Air Officer Commanding Number 1 Group, Air Component Commander for Operation Telic, Chief of Joint Operations at Northwood, 
the Chief of Staff and aide-de-camp to Her Majesty the Queen. When I list his achievements, which include that of the most senior post within the Royal Air Force, the 28th to hold the position, it's easy to forget that Sir Glenn wasn't magically elevated to these remarkable positions and ranks. Like all Air Force pilots, he trained like everyone else. He served on a squadron as a junior pilot and progressed as many others have done before. He even fought in the Gulf War, and it's this part of his career that I want to concentrate on. I was delighted when he agreed to talk to us on the Airline Pilot Guy show and recount some of the more interesting parts of his career. He's going to tell all sorts of tall tales about his life in the Air Force. So, um, Glenn, first of all, thanks very much indeed for uh, letting us all listen to you and uh, hear your stories. Um, could you perhaps start by uh, telling us as a youngster what drew you to a career in the Air Force? Well, first of all, Nick, thanks very much for um, uh, inviting me to, to talk to your listeners. Um, well, I come from an Air Force background. My great-grandfather was in the Royal Flying Corps, right at the very end of the First World War, and my father was in the Air Force. So there was sort of a natural inclination to, to join the service, I suppose. But in reality, um, I didn't want to sort of walk just in father's and grandfather's footsteps. So I was interested in aeroplanes, naturally. I went off to university to study aeronautical engineering with the intention, actually, of going into the aerospace industry. But having got my degree um, from Imperial, um, went around the aircraft industry, trying to sell my wares in my third year, and you know, came to the conclusion that whilst there were some fantastic jobs to, to do and a fantastic career to be had in engineering, um, it probably wasn't going to be for me. And if I'm honest, I didn't think I'd get into the Air Force. Um, I'd either fail the medical or I wouldn't achieve the aptitude um, standards. But anyway, I decided to have a go at it and surprised myself and everybody else, I think, and was accepted for pilot training. So that's really the, the way I got into it. When you weren't joined up, did you have an idea of where you wanted to be when you finished your career? No, absolutely not. And lots of people say, you know, did you ever think you'd end up with, as chief of the air staff? And absolutely not. I think virtually everybody who joins the service, um, they, they join, well, I joined because I wanted to fly aeroplanes. And the day I left the Air Force, I still enjoyed flying aeroplanes. And I had no aspiration but to get through flying training, get onto my first squadron. And, and that, you know, that was my horizon at that stage. Now, I wonder if you could just briefly describe the flying training you went through. Well, I'd never, I think I'd flown a couple of trips in a chipmunk when I was a, an air cadet. But I'd never had any flying training at all until I joined the Air Force. So... I did my 10 hours primary flying grading on a on chippy, which was fairly hair-raising as a youngster, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember, remember those days. <laughs> and then, having got through that, went straight on to the good old Jet Provost um, and did my basic flying training on that. Then, having got through that, first of all, on the Mark 3A, then the Mark 5, um, then went on to the Nat up at Valley to do advanced flying training got through that and then down to Broadie on tactical weapons school on the hunter 
And so it was a pretty conventional flying training. We were quite lucky at that stage in that there weren't many holes going through training. So uh, it was a fairly sort of seamless process, but still took, um, by the time I I joined in September 74, and it was July July 78 by the time I got to my first frontline squadron. So nay on four years. Now, as a student pilot, were there any of the flying prizes which you didn't actually win? Uh, quite a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was. I was just fortunate at the end of the day. Um, now, I think the cream rises to the top. You must have worn out a couple of pairs of shoes uh, on your walks up to the stage to pick up yet another piece of silver. Now, from your uh, course at Broadie, um, where were you posted? I went off to um, the Jaguar, so I suppose when I was going through the tactical weapons call when you were thinking about which frontline aircraft you, you were going to go on to, I'd actually held on 41 Phantom Squadron between Advanced Flying Training and Broadie. And the recce role of 41 Phantom were actually a, predominantly a recce squadron, but actually they did strike attack at the same time. And I was really sort of attracted to the role. So when it came to um, deciding where to, or hopefully to go, I said, well, I'd like to go to Jaguar, and I'd specifically like to go to the um, stri- the, uh, the recce squadron. And that's actually how it turned out. Went out to Lossy Mouse on the OCU, and then I was posted down to Coltishall um, on 41 Squadron. Uh, squadron had recently formed. We were about 18 months into the... The squadron's life and could not have asked for a, a, a better bunch of people but also a better role as well. Now that's an interesting choice because uh, most of us going through the fast jet world I think dreamed of being fighter pilots. Uh, why recce? Well I think it goes back to what I said Nick that 41 Phantom was a strike attack and a, a recce squadron although the primary role was recce but you know they They'd achieved the distinction of winning, winning the tactical bombing competition, although it was only their secondary role. And uh, we were trying to achieve exactly the same on 41 Jaguar. We were part of the Ace Mobile Force, so our deployment base, and you've got to remember this is 1978, so you know, back end of the Cold War. Um, our deployment base was up in North Norway, a place called Bardafoss. Some of the best flying I've you know, ever done. Um, and we got around the world at the end of the day. It was, you know, it was a fantastic, uh, it was a fantastic role. And the good old Jaguar, although it was maligned by lots of people, actually was a really good aeroplane and you know, great to fly a single seater as well. Absolutely. I, actually, I was just about to ask you what it was like to fly. I think you've answered that question. After your tour uh, on Jags, uh, where did you go next? Um, well, I, I thought I was going to go across to our sister squadron at Larbrook, so two squadron, which was the other recce squadron. But actually, I was posted off to um, RF Broadie back as a weapons instructor um, on the Hawk. So Hawk was just coming into service at um, the Tactical Weapons School. So there's a mix of of hunters and hawks. And I was actually posted to 79 squadron, which used to um, refresh people coming through uh, as station commanders or squadron commanders. So actually, on reflection, although I was not very happy initially of going down there, it was a brilliant job. Um, And I also, halfway through my tour, 
was given command of the um, QY course as well, so running the QY courses. So, you know, a typical day would be you go off to the range, you'd go and do a 2v2, and and then maybe off to another um, range sortie or a sap sortie with a with a four ship and a bounce. So, you know, absolutely fantastic flying, to be honest. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot from these older guys coming through, more experienced guys coming through, who probably only took about four or five trips before they were back up to the standard they were three years ago when they finished their their, their previous flying tour. So even though they were, in theory, the students, uh, they were still able to pass on some good gen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I learned a huge amount in that three years. Brilliant. From there, you went on to the Tornado. Was that your choice? Well, I went back to the Jaguar. So uh, having finished Broadie, I went back as a flight commander on 41. Um, then after that, went off to do two, two grand tours, one a year as... Um, on the RAF presentation team, which is actually a very interesting job. Well, that must account for your fine speaking voice. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, and then I did staff college, and then out of staff college, I uh, slipped through the net and was promoted, and I was given 13 squadrons. So that was the final tornado squadron which had formed, and the squadron had been disbanded about uh, 10 years before it had been a Canberra squadron. So I was in a really fortunate position of starting a squadron from absolute scratch again. Um, and again, in the recce role, but a, with a, a secondary uh, attack role as well. When you form a squadron from scratch with a brand new aeroplane, that's a bit of a steep hill to climb, isn't it? In some ways, but actually... You know, it was, a, it was a great chance to shape the squadron in the way that you'd like it to, to end up. And we, we were really lucky. We got brand new Batch 7 Tornadoes, picked them up from the factory at Wharton. They had about five hours on the clock. Um, they, because they were the latest batch, they were much more reliable than some of the earlier um, aircraft. We had a brand new hardened aircraft shelter um, site at RAF Honington. Um, so all the infrastructure was fantastic, and I mean the other feature of the the recce tornado was we had brand new state of the art reconnaissance equipment, which was all um, infrared line scan. So we had three sensors: a vertical infrared line scan, two sideways looking infrared line scans, and it was all digitally. The imagery was all digitally recorded so that you could replay the imagery in the air and the backseater could review the imagery and then data link that to the ground. That, of course, is if it was all working. <laughs> well, it was a problem. <laughs> Which, at the start, it wasn't. Oh, fair enough. Now, not all of us are, are QIs. Could you put your QI hat back on for a second and just explain what infrared line scan is? Well, basically, rather than using um, photographic uh, sensors... The reason that the tornado had gone down the infrared line scan was that the aircraft was was designed to work um, during the Cold War. The assumption was that we would be flying at low altitude in poor weather and at night. And you obviously need a, an infrared sensor to be able to operate at night. So that that's exactly how the sensors were, were designed. They were optimised to operate at at low altitude, so two, uh, at 200 feet, um, 
and optimized to work, to work at night as well. And that's where the, the Tornado's niche was. Excellent. Now, the Air Force had acquired that with a view to operating during the Cold War or a wider theater in mind? No, it, it, I mean, Tornado was very much uh, designed around uh, the Cold War scenario of operating in, um, in Europe, poor weather, and the reason we went down the two-seat role was it was felt that the pilot would have his work cut out operating the aircraft at night, low altitude, so you put most of the navigation and the weapons system into the back seat. And that was a, it was a really good division of labour, um, which you only really saw, to be quite honest, when you operated the aircraft in poor weather and at night. Brilliant. Now, Glenn, your squadron had a great history. Uh, in fact, um, it's got a, a lovely emblem, which uh, I think is commonly referred to as a stabbed cat. Perhaps you could tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, it, when we were putting the squadron together, you know, we were deciding on what the emblem was going to be on the fin of the aircraft and what badges, you know, all the normal stuff you do as a, as a, a newly formed squadron. And the emblem of the squadron was a sword and a shield, and a lynx head and that's effectively uh you know how we put it together and it did, did look like a stabbed cat at the end of the day oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i'm glad i managed to get that question in now here's the meat of it um glenn um how did you get involved in the gulf war and and what stage did you got to in your uh, build-up um on the squadron when that occurred well we the initial cadre of people for the squadron formed in October of 89 and the squadron actually formed in the January of 1990. Um, so we picked up our 12 single-seaters, uh, 12 um, operational aircraft and we had one T-Bird which was an older aircraft and formed squadron, started you know, gradually working the whole squadron up. We had quite a an eclectic mix of people on the squadron. So we'd drawn people from different recce backgrounds, some Tornado guys, some single-seat guys from the Jaguar Force as well. So we had a, a good blend of people and some young first tourists as well. So we had a good blend of people. Um, but the main thing was, you know, how do we get the recce equipment working as quickly as we um, possibly could? So we worked very much um, with industry to see you know, how we could get this new embryonic kit going. So we spent the first sort of six months doing exactly that. And then you'll remember, Nick, that Saddam marches into Kuwait in August of 1990. And like any good squadron commander, you thought, well, I need a bit of this action somehow. So we managed to persuade um, the AOC, uh, the Air Office Command in one group, that although no one was committed to the operation at that stage, that we should at least start working up for it. So for that, we spent our time doing 100-foot flying um, during the day, and then at night we were able to go and practice our terrain-following um, capability, and we were allowed to fly around the UK uh, down to 250 feet, which in normal peacetime we were not allowed to do. You were limited to just 500 feet for safety and noise reasons as well. So in, in many respects, that period from August up to Christmas, and it was fa just fantastic training, to be honest. And then the kit was improving by, by the day as well, but you know, not hugely reliable, if I'm, if I'm honest. 
So what then happened was, as Christmas came up, it was clear that an operation probably was going to happen of some description. And you know, some of the some tornado squadrons, the mud moving uh, squadrons, had already been deployed out to the Gulf. Uh, we had Jaguars out in the Gulf as well. Um, and I was asked by um, by Strike Command, would I go out to Riyadh uh, and talk to the U.S. about what the tornado um, GR1As might be able to do in the recce role because of its unique night recce capability and. Uh, the judgment was that whilst whilst the kit may not be as re- reliable as we would ultimately like it, there was potential for us to provide a niche capability which would be valuable to the coalition. But it was all pretty late in the day at this stage, so we eventually um, deployed a combined detachment of two squadron, which was uh, our sister squadron in Larbrook, and ourselves and we deployed uh, and then ended up at Dharan um, about a week before the war started. We will leave it there until next week when Sir Glenn describes some of the work his squadron did in the Gulf War and some of his personal recollections from missions he flew, some of which made my hair stand on end. I'd like to see that. <laughs> Just like this. Segment of the Ooh, you're supposed to, show you're supposed to wind podcast. it out. Find us I don't hear what you're talking about. <laughs> you said you were going to cut the volume. I, now I remember I said that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a it, quite a smart thing for me to say. It just, I wish that I remembered that I. Well, you know, that was something that we clearly rehearsed in. Uh, yeah, rehearsal. I missed the rehearsal again. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Nick. Uh, we uh, Nick added that at the very end because uh, now this standalone podcast thing is going on. So we thought that perhaps somebody might stumble upon it and go, hey, this is pretty cool. Maybe I'll check out that airline pilot guy podcast and then there'll be. Really, really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it very much. Um, but uh, next week's one has the meat of it. I mean, this is what it was all about. And getting Glenn to talk about um, hunting scuds and other targets on his own at extremely low level, at extremely high speed at night uh, over the Iraqi forces. Uh, and I tell you what, that's the most terrifying job I think I could possibly imagine. He was actually chasing missiles? He was hunting out the missiles. Oh, they, really? They got called the Scud Hunters. Okay. One of their jobs was to try and find Scuds because they were obviously a big threat uh, strategically rather than at the coalition forces. But, of course, uh, you know the coalition relied on countries um, doing what they were asked to do. And, of course, Israel was on the brink of launching their own strikes, mm-hmm. uh, which might not have helped. Right. All very interesting stuff. Yeah, but, fascinating uh, to me. I can't wait to hear the other installments of this. We'll hear the number two, you said, uh, the second part next week. Yep. Yep. And uh, when, when he mentioned Bardafoss, Norway, my ears mm. perked up because I've actually been to Bardafoss once oh, wow. in my life, flying the 141. <laughs> Pretty cold up there. It was very cold and uh, white, <laughs> like <laughs> yes. everything. Absolutely everything yeah. covered in snow we, and ice. And, 
That was not a. I mean, Glenn said he loved the flying up there, um, but it's not a piece of the uh, world I would necessarily want to go and deploy to somewhere mm. with a. You know, nice beaches and cocktails with umbrellas in. That was more my thing. Yeah, me too. And now, if I had to choose between like Bardavos and somewhere out in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert, I'd probably choose Norway myself. Yes, yes. Nicer people. Yeah. No, it's not true. Um, I'm sure there are some lovely people yeah. out there in the middle of the desert. But at the time in the Gulf War, not all of them were very friendly. Complaints at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we know Our what you meant. to offend as many people as possible. That's right. <laughs> in the shortest amount of time. As That's right. That's right. Okay. Very good. Um, awesome. Uh, love the uh, love the gentleman and... Uh, can't wait oh, for more. Glenn was so kind to give up his time. Uh, so, you know, I really appreciated that. Okay, moving on with uh, six. Hey, APG crew. This is my first time submitting feedback, but I wanted to pass along how much I really enjoy the show. I'm an instructor and first officer for a regional airline flying the Embraer 145 out of Philadelphia. Listening to the podcast increases my knowledge and makes my commute flyby pun very much intended. Oh, I see. I didn't read that right. Listening to the podcast increases my knowledge and makes my commute fly by. Pun very much intended. So, thank you for a great quality show. Wanted to share this story that I just witnessed. It was Wednesday, March 28th, about 6.15 p.m. local in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My captain and I were taxiing around the ramp towards runway 9 left for departure to Ottawa, uh, Canada. As we pilots do, we were watching the planes take off as they zoomed by. It was the evening rush or evening push out of Philly. So planes are taking off every minute or so. Down the runway came American Flight 546, an Airbus A321 fully loaded headed to Charlotte. As we saw its nose lifting off the ground, we saw three separate consecutive flames fire out the back of the number one engine. Immediately airborne, the plane suddenly banked about 30 degrees, then quickly righted itself. The flames combined with a sudden bank indicated that they had just had an engine issue. As many pilots know, the most dangerous time to have an engine failure is during rotation as the plane is flying rel relatively slow and aircraft control will be a challenge with no extra altitude to play with. I immediately asked my captain to take COM1 to monitor ramp control while I hopped on to COM2 to pass on what I saw to Tower and the aircraft. As I switched over, I heard Tower American 546, we just had an EGT overtemp. Immediately, the whole tempo of the airport changed. The radios went from constant chatter, uh, airplanes constantly moving around to silent radio frequencies and no movement. ATC told everyone to stay off the radios and to stay where they are. Perhaps the most incredible, incredible part was seeing about 30 planes all scattered around the airport sitting there completely silent. Planes from different airlines in different countries were all quietly waiting and pulling for this crew to safely return all 196 souls on board. Although 9 left was in use for takeoff, the wind slightly favored 27 right for landing, so the crew of the 321 did a 180 to align with the runway for landing. After doing an additional 360 to get established, better established, the aircraft landed visually, came to a stop on the runway, and had fire trucks on the ground confirm the fire and the engine was out. As the aircraft taxied to the gate, multiple pilots congratulated American 546 on a job well done, as well as Philly Tower. This event demonstrates why pilots train the way we do. 
An airline pilot does these V1 cuts numerous times in simulator training, no less than once per year, and trained to the point of near-flawless performance. The pilots did an excellent job and safely brought back the plane and everyone on board. Even in today's most automated planes, pilots have no room for complacency. Great job, American 546. And thanks, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. And again, that's Kyle. Now, I went and did some uh, sleuthing, some snooping, some investigation myself, and found the date and time that Kyle was talking about for this event. And I was able to find the uh, the actual event on the radio. So uh, let's take a listen, and you'll probably hear Kyle's voice, I'm guessing. American 546, 9 left, line up away. Line up away, 9 left, American 546. American 546, fighting 081, Roman 9 or left, clear for takeoff. 031, clear for takeoff, 9 left, American 546. Tower American 546, uh, we have an EGT over temp, we're going to need to uh, fly straight ahead, please. American uh, 546, no problem, let me know any assistance you need. Stand by. Endeavor 3506, yeah, one thing you get a good point when you guys rotated. Flame on the left side engine. What was that call for uh, our flight? You saw a flame out the back end? Yeah, Endeavor 3506, we uh, saw a big flame and it's uh, a little bit of smoke coming off the left side. Roger. That's two or three separate flames that came out. American 546, did you copy that? American 546, let me know whatever you'd like to do. We can get you right back around. If, you can able, if you're able to turn, we can offer you any runway. Okay, we're going to fly straight ahead, take care of the problem. We'll give you a call, American 546. Stand by. American 706 is ready. American 706, Roger, I'll get back to you. American 546, the MVA in that area is 1,600 feet. You have the bridge just off your left side there. Yeah, we're climbing American 546. Well, I've got on the strip. Just uh, remain uh, silent for now. I'll get back to you in just a second with the sequence and for uh, more departure plans. Just give me a minute. And American 546, I know that it's a little hazy out there. Philly altimeter is 3003. 3003, American 546. American 546, I know you guys are busy, but if you need it, you have Northeast Philly about 8 miles to your uh, about 10 o'clock there at 8 miles. Yeah, we're just going to turn around. We're uh, getting some altitude now, American 546. American 546, no problem. Just let me know when you're able to turn. You can turn either direction you like. Just let me know when you're able to turn. Yeah, which either direction, whatever's best for you, American 546. All right, American 546, when able, turn right heading 180. Right turn, 180, American 546. American 546, uh, your choice. We, if you want to work uh, the issue out, and we can get you back in here for 9 right, or if you want to come straight in for 2-7 uh, left or 2-7 right, your choice. Yeah, no need to go around the traffic. We'll just come around for runway 9 right, American 546. All right, American 546, uh, we'll get you up a little higher in case of any further emergencies. You can climb and maintain 4,000 for now if you can do that. Heading of 200. 4,000, 200, heading American 546. American 546, when you get the chance, let me know souls on board and also fuel, please. Okay, we got the 300 and there is uh, 196 souls on board. 196, I didn't catch the fuel. Say it again. Three hours. Thank you. You know what, American 546, uh, we're going to take uh, take the option to use 27, right? American 546, Roger, you can proceed in uh, with a right turn heading of 300, and uh, we're going to get you set up for the uh, ILS to 27 uh, right. 
Pilot, let's do something right. We're going to plan up 300 heading down there, 546. Merrick, 546. Yeah, continue that right turn. I'm going to get you in for the ILS at 27 right. Heading 360 and descend and maintain 3000. 360 heading at 3000, 546. American 546. It looks a little hazy out there right now. They're advertising a uh, few at 3,000. I don't know if the, uh, if the uh, visual is going to work. Let me know if you did, do pick up the airport. If not, I'm just going to run you on the ILS. Yes, plan. Yeah, the ILS. American 546, thank you. Flighting uh, 360 and uh, maintain 3,000. 360 and 3,000. Right, American 546, the center maintain 2,100, and uh, this will be setting you up at the ILS to runway 27 right of the opposite direction. The track that uh, was landing runway 9 right, they already pulled them out for you. American 546, turn left heading 290, join the 27 right low buzzer. 290, join American 546. Back to 546, if you can hear me, you got to sound like you stuck mic, and if you need to heading 240, left turn heading 240 to join. Think so? Yeah, let's do that. Whoa, let's do that. Back to 546, heading 240 to join, please. Yeah, we're going to join the local 546. Back to 546, thank you. You're three miles from uh, Jalta, maintain 2,100 to establish for the localizer, cleared ILS, runway 27-right approach. Just to confirm, American 546, you're clear for the ILS for my 27 right approach. American 546, if you can, just uh, let us know what the uh, fuel and pounds, if you happen to know that off the top of your head. Yeah, we're going to do a 360 American 546. Would a left work better? American 546, uh, that's fine. A left turn, uh, left 360 is fine. Would you like to be taken out a little farther for the ILS to set up? That'll, that'll work for us, American 546. Okay, um, another four minutes or so remaining in the uh, uh, edited audio that I uh, pulled from this. Let me see if I can get toward the end here where they're saying job well done, uh, but the whole thing will be in the show notes. Yeah, there on the left engine. Yeah, the escaping user, show me that your engine fire is out. It appears to be out. I'm going to have a couple vehicles follow them over to the gate. Roger. American uh, 546, if you're able to taxi, just continue, uh, proceed westbound on 27 right. And you're going to exit at the high-speed Kilo 4. We'll exit high-speed Kilo 4, American 546. And for everybody else sitting by, thanks for your patience. We're going to get a sequence to everybody here soon, and uh, we'll be rolling shortly. Good job, fellas. The American 546, you guys did a nice job out there. And uh... All right, so there you go. Um, about nine and a half minutes total running time and uh, toward the end of there when they landed uh, safely on the runway uh, the tower comments that they can see still see some smoke coming from that engine and a little bit of fire but i guess it would, uh, finally extinguished itself once they were stopped on the runway so um kyle uh, i'm sure that that was uh kyle's voice there at the beginning saying that they witnessed the uh, the three uh, bursts of flame, uh, et cetera. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, great audio. Thanks for uh, sharing the story and pointing us towards that. It's good to listen to. So yeah, and as usual, I ended up cutting it all up and you know putting it together so it wouldn't take so right. long. That was you know probably one quarter of the length of time all that took. 
But uh, job well done. But I mean, I, I was very impressed with the uh, tower controller. He was really on top of everything. He was calm and he was aware of the things that the pilots would be concerned about, like the bridge and the uh, their altitude and the, the city and all that. So I thought that was a pretty, pretty job, a pretty well job. Let me try that again. Pretty good job. Well done. <laughs> No, it's not. Unlike this show. Um, Very professional, wasn't it, Jeff? Very professional. Yes. Unlike this. You know, you you mentioned that the the controller was calm. What I heard was that the pilots were really calm as well. Yeah, that little snippet there where they actually were transmitting, um, they thought they were, um, what, had a stuck mic or maybe one of them didn't let go of the microphone switch. You could actually hear a little bit of the conversation in the cockpit, and it was very calm. Uh, they were, you know, discussing what they were doing and and uh, didn't seem like they were stressed out at all. Yep. All right. Thanks, Kyle, for not only sending in the audio, but I mean, uh, the uh, feedback, but uh, for actually being a part of that story. Uh, Sealview, Sealview <laughs> writes in, uh, haven't seen or haven't sent feedback in a while and give you guys an update on my flight training. So far, I'm sitting at almost seven flight hours with a temporary student pilot certificate and a nice class three medical exam. So there is a long way ahead and we'll give you updates as progress happens or if I stumble upon anything along the way. As I did stumble across a video while browsing YouTube, here's a link. You guys might've seen it, but some of your listeners might not. So let us know what you guys think. And if it brings your accuracy above that 50%, nothing but the best from here, Kilo Papa Whiskey Kilo, my home airport, tailwinds, unlimited visibility, turbulence, free air, unlimited IPAs, and bourbon for Dana. Sealview, out. Hi, I'm Roger. Would you like to go on an adventure your ancestors would have sold their souls for? Well, at Horton Airlines, we'll give you the miracle of flight. And then ruin it. If airlines were honest. Every day, my airline sends out dozens of these metal arm tubes through the sky, which I've conquered. And we do that by packing those tubes with thousands of you butts. I mean people. Sometimes I forget that you're entire people and not butts that somehow possess plastic debt rectangles. Oh, also, please use my plastic debt rectangle. I'll give you points I made up if you do. And almost all of you will forget to turn those points into anything but the initial dopamine rush of receiving them, which is almost something. Anyway, Use some present or future currency to make an appointment for your posterior with one of my sky chairs. And live in fear of missing that appointment. Even though when you show up for that appointment very early, it'll be the most degrading experience of your entire year. Upon arrival at the arm tube barn on the outskirts of your city, you'll let several strangers inspect your junk and your genitals, unless you paid the government a fee so you could use the short line and have freedoms. Just remember. It'll all right. All so I don't want to play the whole thing here, but uh, interesting uh, comedic video uh, from Cracked. That's C-R-A-C-K-E-D. No reference at all to your junk. Although it could be. Um, 
Thank you, uh, Sealview. <laughs> Am I the only one that was laughing at that initially? No, yeah, because you're the only one good. that has that horrible sense of humor. He kept talking about Hortons. Is that a is that a company in the states? No, no. So- not that I'm aware okay. of. I used to go to a restaurant. I'm pretty sure called Hortons in Pasadena, but might be a coincidence. I think it may be. Yes. Um. Hopefully, we won't get spanked by YouTube for playing so much of that video. But anyway, thank you, Sealview, for sending it in. And again, the link to that entire video will be in the show notes, so you can watch it yourself. Trevor sent some feedback. He says, Hey, Captain Jeff, hope you're doing well. I recently wrapped up initial training for the Caravan G1000 that my company has purchased, and I thought I'd record a little trip report for the ABG community. While this is, while this sort of high-intensity training is probably routine for y'all in the airlines and corporate aviation, this is my first time going through any sort of structured higher educa- uh, aviation education. For a flight sim nerd turned real pilot like me, I'm sorry, for a flight slim nerd turned real world pilot like me, it was a really awesome experience. Take care and happy Easter. Okay, he sent this in a little while ago. Not too long ago, though. So again, that's Trevor in Colorado. And let's take a listen. Hey there, APG crew and community. It's Trevor from Colorado here. Just wanted to send in a quick trip report, if you will, from the past 11 days that I spent in Wichita, Kansas for the Caravan G1000 initial training. This is training that's required by our insurance carrier, and it was to prepare myself and another company pilot for operating our new aircraft that uh, my company has. As far as the training itself went, um, I arrived on Wednesday uh, for class that started on Thursday. The classroom portion ran 8 to 5 each day with a one-hour break for lunch, so there was a lot of information. Uh, As you can imagine, it was pretty intense. A lot of information that you have to cover and to learn and understand, ask questions, that sort of thing. The class itself ran from Thursday through Saturday with a test on Saturday afternoon to wrap things up. I'm happy to say that fortunately I passed the test with flying colors, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, But yeah, it was certainly a a challenging bit of information and uh, definitely drinking out of the fire hose as the saying goes. With the classroom portion behind us, we had Sunday off, which I actually used to go on a solo trip up to the Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, Kansas. It's the largest combined collection of U.S. and Russian spaceflight artifacts in the world. And I hadn't actually been there since I was a kid, probably 25 years ago. So it was great to see everything that has changed. And, uh, you know, like I said, a, a huge collection, a lot of, uh, a lot of great artifacts. Then on Monday, we started the Sims. Uh, my Sim partner, who is one of our other company pilots, and I had the prime Sim slot of 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. each day, which uh, those of you who know how simulator training goes, that was actually a really cush time slot. The simulators, uh, from what I recall, run like 20 or 22 hours a day, so you can end up with some really early or some really late Sim slots. We actually had this nice cushy one that we could sleep in a little bit and then go home and study and have uh, you know plenty of time to refresh and prepare for the next day. But uh, the sim days themselves consisted of two hours of a pre-flight briefing discussion, kind of talking through what we were going to do. And then we went to the sims, which were back-to-back two-hour blocks of time in the full motion level D simulator. 
these are the same type of full motion sims that I'm sure the APG crew is intimately familiar with. Only these were scaled down to replicate a Cessna Caravan G1000 instead of a Mad Dog or an Airbus or whatever it may be. So very realistic. The full motion really adds a, a new depth and it was, uh, it was really cool. Just kind of a digression. I've been a flight simmer for nearly three decades. So. You know, to be able to fly and train and log time in a level D full motion simulator made the whole experience somewhat of a pinch me uh, moment. I mean, it was it was definitely cool. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. So anyhow, so each sim day we would cover a handful of topics, learn how to deal with in-flight emergencies, fly both visual and instrument approaches, you name it, we would cover it. So I'd fly for two hours in the left seat, we'd take a short break, uh, and then my sim partner would fly for his two hours in the left seat with me in the right seat. Uh, so we'd swap back and forth. So it was pretty intense. We didn't really uh, act as a crew. All this was done single pilot, um, which is kind of our main focus as a company operator. But the last day we did a little crew coordination, CRM. Um, so that was good as well. After each session, we would spend about half an hour debriefing and discussing the plan for the next day, kind of special emphasis areas, you know, just kind of get a, a lay of the land for our next sim session. So we had time to prepare that evening for what we were going to see the next day. And it went on like that for an entire week with us practicing instrument approaches, short field landings, takeoffs, uh, engine failures, air data computer failures, emergency descents, icing equipment failures, fuel emergencies, you name it, we, we went through it. We ran the gamut on it. A lot to cover, but uh, I think I ended up with something like 27 takeoffs and 15 instrument approaches by the end of the week. So yeah, there was a, a lot of sim flying. Finally, on late Friday afternoon, I had managed to check off all of the required activities, so we got to have a little bit of fun and try an aircraft carrier landing in the Cessna caravan. I made it. It wasn't pretty, but with the help of a headwind, I think I stopped in a mirror like 300 feet or so. Uh, we taxied back and then took off again. So, yeah, you know, it was a fun way to cap training and hopefully a completely useless exercise for the flying that we'll be doing here in Colorado, since there are not many aircraft carriers to land on here. After the week of training, Monday through Friday, I had one more sim session at 5 a.m. on Saturday. Uh, this was called the Line-Oriented Simulator Training, or appropriately enough, Lost. Fortunately, I'm happy to say I did not get lost. Uh, I actually made it through the simulated IFR flight from Portland to Seattle and then to Wenatchee uh, in eastern Washington without incident. And, you know, despite the early report time, it was fun to be able to do something other than take off and fly an approach or have some sort of in-flight emergency. It was great to use the caravan in a point A to point B sort of fashion like it's supposed to do. So now I guess I'm a uh, certified Caravan G1000 pilot and uh, look forward to flying our company plane soon. It's uh, It was a great experience. Really gave me insight into the world of training that corporate aviators, commercial pilots, airline pilots, you name it, that they go through. I have a whole new respect for the intensity of that training when you're learning a new airplane. Anyhow, that's my trip report. Thanks for indulging me and uh, keep up the great work. Blue skies. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Trevor. Awesome trip report. And uh, thanks for letting us kind of get a glimpse into uh, that training program for the uh, Caravan G1000. Very cool. I like the uh, caravan on the aircraft carrier. That's yeah. I'm just picturing that. Probably not super <laughs> practical, but you know. <laughs> no, not at all. But a lot nice of fun, to have though. a little bit of fun in all the <laughs> See, I always more serious caravan, training. You know? A caravan got towed behind a Volvo, but I'm obviously thinking of something else. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. We don't call. We call those trailers here. Um, yeah, not not a caravan. No, not they're caravan. caravans. No, <laughs> caravan no. is like a whole caravan. bunch of those <laughs> in a line a whole going bunch somewhere. Of those? Yeah. 
like a whole bunch of vehicles. <laughs> a whole bunch of vehicles. Like a, a, no, that's not a caravan. That's a convoy. Oh, okay. Well, we yeah. all we screw everything up, don't we? <laughs> a caravan is a bunch of uh, camels going through the desert. A bunch of camels. Yeah, there you go. A line of camels. Yeah, there. there. That's why we call. Why do you have lines of camels on your freeways? Well, no, they're not. They're they're mechanical camels. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to us. Leave us alone. Love it. Yeah. Um, tough, tough crowd, Jeff. Really it tough is crowd. very tough yeah. crowd. But. Uh, Quick question from Andrew about contrails. Contrails. My name is, I know. We, we can't talk Be about careful that, the way can. you articulate your answer here, okay? Mm. My name is Andrew. Yesterday afternoon, I was driving and saw one of the many Europe, Middle East to LAX flights that often pass over northern Utah while at a stoplight. I looked it up on FlightAware and saw that it was a DLH 456 D, let's see, Delta. Alpha India Hotel Yankee A340-642. Woo! Woohoo! Okay, the thing that prompted me to submit this was the contrails. Engines 1 through 3 were all parallel. Number 4 was not parallel to the others, but separated noticeably away from the others immediately after the plane. What could cause this? Thank you. Heavy Andrew. landing. Hmm? Heavy landing. Heavy landing. Bent. <laughs> Bent wing, <laughs> bent the pylon. Well, he I probably dinked it against something a cargo carrier version, so they wouldn't notice that sort of thing. I know, no. Uh, I said I think it's obviously the chemtrail ejector pod located between the oh. number and three and Shh. four inches, oh, which sometimes disrupts the airflow. Okay, Shh. <laughs> I have no idea. You'll have the chemtrail police after you. I know. They're already on to me. Uh, do you, do you really have any idea what uh, would cause that? That is kind of odd. No, nope. uh, I, I mean to have uh, a, an asymmetry in the airflow around the aircraft uh, between just the distance between the engines would be quite difficult, I guess. But you could be in the edge of a a jet stream that might just tweak one of the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trails away from the aircraft. I don't know. It's got to start that somewhere. Was right? only, that was my only thought, just being like right on the boundary of yeah. you know, diverging yep. airflow. But who knows? Yeah, it's yeah. he was over northern Utah. It's just a strange place, anyway. So. Oh, I know Utah, northern Utah. Don't they have northern a lot Utah. of um, a lot of uh, aliens? <laughs> I mean, it's it's close enough to New Mexico, so yeah. Okay, that's my guess. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully we helped you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the uh, the three forty six hundred with the vector thrust because ah. he might have been vectoring that engine. So yeah, yeah, I wanted to scoot a little bit more to the left, so it was using yeah, that vector. Exactly uh, right. Ah. Yeah, just twisting that pod out slightly, and vectoring. <laughs> that. Nice. All right. Let's move on. 11. Uh, as a part 141 college student with just under 300 hours and about a month from graduation, I'm starting to look at regional airlines to possibly fly for. I plan on instructing until I reach my 1,000 hours required for the restricted ATP, but feel like I should look at airlines now. My question is regarding looking at different airlines, regional or major. What would be your suggestion for what to look for or look at in different airlines? And how did you decide on the airline you've flown for was it pay bonuses bases culture benefits aircraft and which is most important 
Thanks for the great content. You and the APG crew make the long hours of homework easier. Thanks. And again, this is uh, certified flight instructor Patterson. Well, I mean, he named many of the considerations for looking at the various airlines. And honestly, it depends on what you what your priorities are, what you consider to be the most important of all those things that you mentioned there. And chances are that no matter what carrier that you pick, it's possible for that airline to suffer problems in the future. There's no crystal ball that I know of. Um, you know, you think about some of the great airlines out there, TWA, Pan Am, Braniff, Eastern, they're all gone. And they were, no. if you had said to somebody, you know, 30, 40 years ago that these airlines were no longer going to be here, uh, people would think you were crazy. Yeah, you don't have to get your choice exactly right first time, though, because when you're starting on your career, your seniority is not nearly so important to you as when you're later on in your career. You can't afford to give up that seniority. But at the beginning, so long as you're not tied to an, uh, an airline with, say, some kind of bond, then there's, uh, I don't see anything wrong with going for the airline you think. But if a year or two down the road, you go, you know, this airline isn't really where I wanted to be. I wanted to be over there. Uh, I see I see nothing wrong at that stage in your career with switching and making sure you're in the airline that suits you. Um, Dodd's type of flying and has all the remuneration you expect because you won't drop that far back in the seniority system. The thing is to try and get early decision right and then uh, stick with the airline that you go for for your career, because once your seniority numbers start to build, you that's not the time to pull out. Now, a, a, well, a caveat, and maybe Dana is going to address this, is that the way or the hiring cycle we're undergoing right now in the U.S., a year and a half could mean more than a thousand positions of uh, of, of change in your seniority. So perhaps not a smaller airline that's not hiring at such a quick pace that may not be such a big deal but that's something you have to be very careful about because that you could be giving up quite a bit of lifestyle and benefits and pay over that year and a half period yeah i mean that's one of the things i was i was just going to talk about the other thing is is i find uh, that most people that are not in this business have a real tough time understanding that uh, when we when we get hired by a company, we're pretty much married to that company for our career. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that when when you go from uh, you know you can't go very easily from airline to airline, and you have to, I find that I explain it as this: I mean, you can be an international triple seven captain flying overseas, have thirty years of experience, but if the airline happens to go out of business or you know, whatever happens, you're no longer employed there. Uh, even with all that experience, you start at the bottom of a, a seniority list as a junior, just hired person. does not matter what type of experience you have. So a lot of the people that are out there that have no understanding of our industry don't can't have a tough time grab, grabbing on to that concept. We just can't move from company to company. Of course, you know, it depends on where you are in the world. Now, for instance, we know somebody um, – in our community uh, whose airline folded and he was a captain for that airline and he was hired by another European airline uh, as a captain. So it, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of 
comparing apples and oranges based on where Captain Nick and his world and the way they do things and the way it works over here in the United States on a almost pure seniority system. Yeah, but I would wonder, and in, in probably on a seniority basis, even though he's hired as captain, he's the most junior captain at that airline. Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, I'm sure to a certain extent, uh, his seniority is affected. But um, again, um, I think that uh, uh, CFI Patterson here is most likely um, asking about the world of U.S. carriers. And if that's the case, it's uh, go ahead. I would say say this, you know, you're coming out of a part 141 college. You have I'm sure you know plenty of folks around you who are looking at similar career paths, and there may be some folks who are slightly ahead of you in this process. Um, I think it doesn't, it never hurts to network, talk to people who are just ahead of you, people who have gone through the process recently, people who are at, you know, if you're looking at regional airlines or, or other similar carriers, um, find out what they like, what they don't like, because it may not just be as straightforward as what you can put on paper, pay bonuses, uh, you know, uh, bases aircraft um you did mention in their culture and other things like that and um you know that's important too in considering where you want to work find out where people are happy and um talk to people who have similar interests and career paths as you as well because those are the folks who can probably give you the best information well you know the the one other thing i was going to mention is that it's always a changing industry so you may choose uh one airline over another right now, but in 10 years, or even in, in some cases when you retire is when you know that you made the right or the wrong decision. And one of, one of the other things that I would take into consideration is where do you want to live? Do you want to commute? Those are some of the questions. It's, you know, it's not necessarily always about the airline, individual airline. There are always similarities there in pay and benefits. Because we all, you know, we kind of all build our contracts against each other. Um, and it just comes down to quality of life. Do you want to live in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Or do you want to live in Anchorage in case of UPS? Or um, or do you, you know, where are you, where are you from? And where do you prefer to live? So a lot of it's quality of life in, in whether you want to commute. That's that. Those are the two things that I would look at personally. And it really, again, depends on the on the person. We all know people who put um, a um, an emphasis on pay and rapid upgrade, and others that put an emphasis on their lifestyle, living where they where all their family is, and putting up with commuting, and and maybe you know giving up some of that seniority uh, for that kind of a lifestyle. So it's really a. a it's, it's hard to say, decision. you know, yeah, it's an individual thing. It really is. You have to prioritize what, what you want in, in, in your airline career. Yeah. Really. All right. Um, the next few here, as we close out the show are basically follow-ups from some earlier shows, uh, near in, uh, Israel writes, aerial, aerial refueling of commercial airline flights makes no financial sense because of the costs. Technically, it's viable and is performed routinely with militaries worldwide. An excellent example is Air Force One's refueling capability. It's a Boeing 747 airframe, but is it a commercial airliner? Having said all that, how and where would you start trying to certify such a capability with the FAA? Imagine the safety requirements that one would be required to meet, test, and qualify. All the best near. Yeah. And we basically were saying that as, as well. It just, the cost just would not support 
the flexibility and convenience of aerial refueling. Um, Lou, 13, um, just wanted to respond to Dr. Steph's question as to whether computer viruses can mutate like biological viruses in response to the story about Boeing being hit by the WannaCry virus. The answer to that question is yes, computer viruses do self-mutate. The term in the industry for this is polymorphic virus or a polymorphic virus to try to avoid detection. This is just one part, one of a part of a large bag of trips. <laughs> Man, can't read today. Yeah, this English language is really it's tough. tough on me. It's um, tricky. It's not my native language, obviously. No, blather, I think, is your Yes. Native- <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. Oh, these... these- Oh, Dan is gone. <laughs> Would you like me to read this one, Jeff? Sure. Do you want me to start it over? Yeah, start from the beginning. Lou, uh, responding to uh, my question, he says, greetings, everyone. I just wanted to respond to Dr. Steph's question as to whether computer viruses can mutate like biological viruses in response to the story about Boeing being hit by the WannaCry virus. The answer to that question is yes, computer viruses do self-mutate. The term in the industry for this is a polymorphic virus to try to avoid detection. This is just one part, uh, one of a part of a large bag of tricks that virus writers use to try to avoid detection. However, this is just part of the story behind WannaCry. Much like a biological virus would need some sort of infection vector to get into the victim, an open wound, an animal bite, inhalation of germs, etc. So does a computer virus. In the case of WannaCry, it took advantage of a flaw in Windows that allowed it to sneak into the system and infect it. However, this particular flaw was fixed a year ago, right around the time WannaCry hit the news. While the first WannaCry victims, understandably, may not have gotten around to installing the fix before they were infected, due to the fix only barely being out before the virus hit, Boeing has no excuse for waiting this long to install the fixes and updates necessary to keep WannaCry out. Anyway, love your show. Blue skies and tailwinds to all of you. Lou A. Thank yeah, you. but we can understand, Boeing. I mean, they're hardly into the computer age yet. <laughs> I mean, they're still messing about with yokes and wires and... <laughs> I know that. Mm-hmm. So you've got to give them a Nick. bit of a break. Yeah, the 787 is not an advanced airplane. Yeah, at not advanced at all. is <laughs> not advanced. No, not at all. All right. You know, we almost made it through an entire APG episode <laughs> without the uh, Airbus Boeing thing. Almost. We got close. Almost. Yeah. Oh, no, Very close. No Airbus involved. I was just slating Boeing. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh Thank you, Lou uh, A, for uh, schooling us on uh, polymorphic viruses. Uh, I was wondering about that the other day. Uh, David writes, thought I would drop you a line regarding the feedback on 317 and Level, which is operated by Iberia. The airline is a newish, low-cost, low-long-haul carrier set up by A. <laughs> uh, Nick, you want to read this one? <laughs> Sorry, the dogs are barking. I can't oh, okay. possibly. I'll start over. Uh, the airline is a newish, low-cost, long-haul carrier. Uh, Dana, would you like to read this one? Yeah, I could do it for you. I'm okay, why don't you start here. from thought? Thought I would drop you a line, read the feedback. Re, regarding. Know, regarding, exactly. That's the feedback on APG 317 in level, which is operated by Iberia. The airline is a newish low-cost long-haul carrier set up by IAG, who owns BA, Aer Lingus, and Iberia, among others. 
the flights are operated by Iberia, although the intention was for Level to work towards its own AOC over time. If you're Airline Operating Certificate, I believe that's what he's saying there. It is a little different in that rather than a small outfit operating the flight for a larger name, it's an established and well-regarded operator flying for a less well-known airline. As ever, great show. Keep the blue side up, the wheels on the tarmac, and when required, it just no. ends it right there. And the wheels on the tarmac when required. Oh, well. See, none of us can read. <laughs> Speak for yourselves. I think I read just fine this time okay. around. Yeah, I think you I've, I've been working on my, my reading skills. Have you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used to have a little sound clip in here for uh, Steph, and uh, I don't think I've used it in a couple of years. I don't even yes. remember what it was. You say it right, years. And that's why yes. I don't understand. Yes. You don't want me reading because nobody yes. can understand what I'm saying. Yes. But you guys were here first, so we shall. Yes. We have the proper English accent. Really? And I've never heard that stuff. They they were here first? I've never heard that either. I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Northeastness. I'm just letting you guys get on with it. (laughs) Just sitting back and watching. Break out the popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good show. Yeah. I'm curious to know what the sound clip was because I don't even remember. I'm trying to find it. Steph. <laughs> it sounds yes. like pole dancing music. Not that I'd know. Little, little miss, little miss. Steph can't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never wrong. It's been a long time since I played that. It's been a very long time. Actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think we're still under three hours, believe it or well, not. Okay. Um, let's Lucas. And with Lucas, and uh, he sent us a very smart-looking photo of himself and his lovely bride on the beach of a beautiful island, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. Does anybody have any idea how to pronounce that uh, Cook Island island? Aijutaki? Aijutaki? I don't know. Aijutaki? I have no idea. It's a couple of vowels there. Looks... Looks strange, but it's a beautiful looking place out in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, he is wearing um, a very stylish T-shirt with a certain logo on it. And uh, here, let me uh, play the audio that he sent with us. Hey, APG crew, it's uh, Flying Kiwi. How are you? Um, just catching up uh, with you guys. Um, I'm a few episodes behind because I have been on vacation. Uh, it's my first vacation in a year. Um Went back to the lovely island of Aitutaki, which is uh, in the Cook Islands. There you go. Um, went for 10 days, so packed a lot of T-shirts, uh, and one of which was my uh, Acme uh, airline pilot guy T-shirt, which I um, strode around the island in trying to drum up some publicity for you. But uh, sadly, it's a very small island, and they're not terribly aviation-focused, although the um, the airstrip is about half the length of the island. <laughs> um I have worn it a couple of times in a few different aero clubs in New Zealand and, and had got recognition for that. So uh, you are um, world famous in New Zealand, as we uh, was like to say down here. Um, and it got me thinking, um, maybe in the uh, 
in the vein of, of extreme ironing or the planking craze that went on a couple of years ago. Do you guys remember that? When people would go up mountains or do abseiling with ironing boards and take pictures of themselves doing extreme ironing. Um, maybe we could have an Acme t-shirt, extreme Acme t-shirt or exotic locales Acme t-shirt competition. Um, you know, maybe in front of a cool aeroplane or on the top of a mountain or upside down in a cockpit or something like that. All very safe, obviously. Um, so uh, in, in that case, uh, here is my entry. Um, so that's me on the beach with my airline pilot guy t-shirt and Aitutaki. Uh, so beat that, everybody. Go on then. A um, couple of other things. Uh, recently sold my house. Uh, moved up to a nice beach location. Um, so I had a bit of cash in the bank for the old holiday. Um, but uh, why that's of aviation, though, is um, I obviously have APG... Um, syndrome or just some sort of weird aviation sickness because um, during the sort of thrust and parry of the um, offer um, negotiation for the house um, the number got very very close to a very specific number that I was after and I just couldn't resist. Um, Captain Nick will probably make vomiting uh, noises very shortly. Um, The offer that I finally accepted um, which I which I um, you know fabricated um, so the ending offer was 747800 <laughs> sorry Captain Nick it's um, Airbus's fault for having really low uh, model numbers um, A380 wasn't going to cut it for me so it, uh, <laughs> it got to be 747800 um, it's a very very sad joke and, and my partner rolled her eyes and uh, and none of the other parties got it so uh, it made me chuckle <laughs> um just uh, continuing on with with the with the saga of my medical, uh, I um, have uh, still not um, convinced the CAA uh, that I'm safe enough to, to, to do these things. Well, this it's still in review. Um, so uh, poor Glenn Towler um, hasn't gone up for his promised flight yet, and it's been a while. Um, I'm looking at doing uh, what is known as an RPL though to get me back into the air. Which is a which is kind of an odd thing. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a New Zealand specific thing. I think they modelled it off something in the in the US, but um, it's a type of a pilot's license, a recreational pilot license, um, that you can get without having a class one or class two medical. I believe the medical requirements are less stringent, and this is probably for um, microlight type pilots or, or aging pilots who who are struggling to get um, class one and class two medicals. Um, the, the the there are a few restrictions of it, um, which most of which which bother don't bother me. However, um, <laughs> um, I'm only allowed to take one person in an airplane at a time, which seems to be kind of a weirdly arbitrary um, figure. Um, instead of taking three or four people in an airplane, I can only take one, and and I kind of wonder what sort of cost benefit analysis the CAA did. To, to come up with that, like it's it's okay to only kill one person as opposed to three people at a time. Should I suffer a medical emergency in the cockpit? Uh, it's a it's a bit odd, um, which which isn't a huge problem for me. I normally fly the Tomahawk, which is only a two seater, so I usually take one person at a time. But uh, yeah, kind of miss um, taking um, my mates around places and, and going to to markets or going for that you know two hundred dollar hamburger somewhere. Um, and uh, it would be good to, to take Glenn and, and maybe this other um, pretender in New Zealand, Luke, um, who thinks I stole his, his, his flying Kiwi 
um, Monica. I've had flying Kiwi for a while, mate, so uh, sorry. <laughs> um, but if you are in the Wellington region, let me know uh, and get in touch. In fact, um, we should probably organise some sort of New Zealand slash Wellington meetup at some point since there seems to be a lot of us in New Zealand. So maybe we should all get in touch. Um, anyway, um, thanks for the great podcast, guys. Um, it's been really helping me out um, into the transition back to work, um, listening to you guys and, and chuckling along. So, uh, uh, congratulations to Captain Dana uh, for his soon to be uh, first captain's ride. Um, have a good one, mate, and you're going to be awesome. Um, good luck to everybody else and uh, keep the blue side up. Cheers very much. Fine, keep us out. Lots of APG community members living in Wellington, which, of course, as everyone knows, is on the southern portion of the North Island. Um, I know that. Um, yeah, I've flown out of that. <laughs> and you, you've always known that. I've correct. always known that, regardless of what I've said. <laughs> what I meant to say was... Um, and uh, so he was talking about the T-shirt and the, uh, the extreme... APG yeah. T-shirt contest. So hey, hey, Lucas, challenge accepted. I know. I've thought of doc, everybody did. I'm sure <laughs> listening to that, thinking, "Oh my gosh, what is Doctor Steph going to do wearing her APG?" I will put a disclaimer out there as HR um, switching roles for a moment. Um, the APG show does not endorse you doing anything that might be inherently dangerous or otherwise as part of any uh, uh, implied endorsement of a t-shirt competition, which we may or may not be officially endorsing. I don't know. So what, like, be, like jumping out of airplanes, be safe out there, yeah. kids. <laughs> <laughs> don't try any of this at home. Now I'm a little confused though. The picture that he sent uh, doesn't look extreme to me. Well, he did say exotic locations. Oh, so exotic. One, okay. Different categories. Okay. Of the, you okay. Know. Yeah. And the extreme ironing, um, I must have missed that one. I was not one. familiar with that one. I, I do remember the planking craze, but extreme ironing was not something that I yeah. recall. Oh, you'll find plenty of photographs on uh, Google if you uh, Google I will. It. I will check it out after People we finish. Ironing, I'm fascinated. Ironing shirts in underwater, up Everest, all sorts of places. Okay. Very I'm interesting. Jealous. I don't even have a t-shirt. Well, you need to get one. <laughs> yeah. Just so head over to airlinepilotguy.com. It's, it's, it's not like I can just go on to uh, any website on the internet and just buy. Yeah, it's not PG like you, you could just do that. Ah, I guess he's hinting that I need to send him a t-shirt. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, with that, I think it's now he's time so cheap. <laughs> to end the show uh, by I'll telling you that uh, if you want your APG t-shirt and you want to win this competition that we have not structured and we are not encouraging or uh, supporting endorsing. or endorsing, yeah. uh, you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com and there you'll see ways to order merchandise, to uh, join the Coffee Fund cadre, to learn about the crew, the community, and so much more. Uh, again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, we have some apps for your smartphones and tablet devices, and they are on the respective app stores. Just look for, do a search for Airline Pilot Guy. Free and not ad-supported. By the way, our show is free and not ad-supported. It's user-supported. And thank you again, all of you who are uh, contributing to the Coffee Fund and are part of our Coffee Fund cadre. We really do appreciate it. And uh, if you want to follow us uh, during the week between shows, you should uh, follow us on social media. On social media, you can find us on Twitter at APG Crew is the handle you want to use. 
and over on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, all kinds of interesting activity going on, not just from crew members, but also the community around the world. Absolutely. And then a quasi social media site. You can join us on the, uh, what do you call it? Slack group or the Slack team. I think he calls it. Uh, Hillel, help me. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you, sir. And uh, let's see. Don't forget, we have a couple of meetups this next week. Uh, Monday, Norfolk, Virginia. Tuesday, Columbus, Ohio. Hope to see you there. And until we meet again, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Adios, muchachos. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline like a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly Boy, I ain't going.